after 20 years of being shown firsthand what is a bracha look like Levan chases down Yaakov Yaakov says I only left this way because I knew you're not going to let me go without a fight and everything what's Levan's response what do you mean I wouldn't go and fight of course I'd fight everything here is mine everything here is mine you're saying that you worked for me day and night and there was never a miscarriage because of you and there was never a loss because of you and da 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 who cares about what you're saying everything here is mine meaning that simple he didn't learn anything he didn't learn anything nothing he didn't learn he stayed the same Levan Rashad that he was in the beginning so the Zohar says someone that you give him Musal and he not only doesn't listen he turns into your enemy that's a Rashad but sometimes there are certain people you give them Musal they don't go against you they don't hate you but they run away why? because they go to Tustus over here and other Rishayim like him they tell them the Tzadikim listen Rabbi I don't hate you I just don't agree with your style what style do you want? This is Torah. Is there styles where he was Nike? Is DKNY? Is Gucci? Versace? What what style? It's Torah. No, no, I don't know. My rabbi teaches different. It's not possible to teach different. It's either Torah or it's not Torah. I don't know. He is also rabbi. He looks religious just like you. That's the problem. He looks religious just like you. But he's not like you. Why? You say, I have to change my whole life. And you tell me things that make me uncomfortable. Why? Because I know they're true. I know God said to keep Shabbat. I know. I know God said don't steal. I know God said all these different things. I don't know everything you say, but I know that God said a lot of these things. I heard them before. But He doesn't say those things. So it must be something. All He says is, we're building a campus. All he says is, give staka and you're fine. Which means that Rabotai, and right now you're in a situation where either a person, you cannot help them, because after you tried, they turn into an enemy. That's a rasha. Or, the enemy is not them. The enemy is their rabbi, or whatever person... Is causing them to go against Hashem. And they could agree with you. They could even like you. They could be your friend. They could be your co-worker. But, as long as they have a connection to this Tum'ah, they can't let it go. So now I'm going to ask you again. How are you going to help them?
I can't hear you. Okay. It's pretty good. But what do you do about when after you appeal to them, you say, listen, obviously it doesn't make sense that if you commit a crime in this world, you can get a sentence in a jail for five years for a crime that took you five minutes. So how is it that if you make crimes against the Shem for 40 years, you're only going to get one year in Gainom? How does that make sense? So you appeal to them in their logic. And you didn't only make one crime against him. You made 40, 50, 60, 70 years worth of crimes. And for Hashem is maximum one year. And uh, But in this world, it's it could be 25 years to life. So you appeal to their logic. But they go back to Tustus. And Tustus is going to tell them, look, it says... Uh, says 12 months and they don't understand what they're reading they just say whatever he says I agree because it fits my agenda Shem has the son of suffering you're right but is there any other way No. You're decreeing six million Jews to get suffering right now. It's not enough. Coronavirus has already killed millions of people. Many of them are Jews. More suffering. That's the decree. Some of these people are your cousins, your mothers, your fathers. Kids could be. That's the decree. You're right. If suffering comes, Holocaust comes, everybody becomes religious. You're right. Is that the only way? Kirvat Hashem Litov, Kirvat Hashem Litov. beginning is you said some people have dreams some people have dreams and most of these dreams have no meaning but Sen Gemara Brachot says sometimes you don't have a dream but you wake up with a pasuk you wake up in the morning, and instead of thinking, the kosher Jew thinks, what does he think first thing in the morning? Modani lefanecha. Thank you, Hashem, for giving me my neshama. What if, instead of saying, Modani lefanecha, you have a pasuk from the Torah, comes out. Kirvat Hashem litov. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad Bereshit Barah Elokeinu Hashem Echad Bereshit Barah Elokeinu Hashem Echad Any Pasuk 
פסוק, you don't have, okay, גרסי מודה אני, but you have something coming out of your mouth, almost like it's not you, but it's you. And it doesn't just go away after that. It stays with you the whole day, for days. Gemara says, this is a partial nevuah. Partial prophecy. They don't start calling me tomorrow every day. Oh, Rabbi, I had a pasuk, I had a pasuk. Okay, Habibi, yeah, you worked on it the night before, that's why you had a pasuk. Point is how to do what, what, what to think of this pasuk when you get it. Sometimes, HaKadosh Baruch Hu just wants you to know, I'm close to you, I'm watching you, I'm going to help you. David the Melech says, in Psalm 70, uh, chapter 73, verse 28, for me, getting closer to Hashem, is good. It's good for me. Say the Chachamim, I don't understand. The name Elohim is Din. It's judgment. The Yud Ke Vav Ke, the Yud He and the Vav He, that's Chesed, mercy. So what David Melech is saying is a little bit of an oxymoron. How can you say Kirvat Hashem Litov when it's Kirvat getting closer to the judgment is good for me. Judgment is good for you. You want coronavirus, bankruptcy, stock market crash, cancer, what is this? Well, David, explain. How is the judgment good? You say, Bani. Kirvat Hashem Litov, it's the Yud Kevav Kate, that name, it's Chesed, yeah, okay, yeah. Hashem, give me bracha this year, give me more kids, give me more students, give me more this, give me more, 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 more good. Shtabach Shimolad, greatest thing in the world. Kirvat Hashem Litov. But David Amedach says, no. Kirvat Elohim Litov. Judgment's good. What do you think David Amedach is, Chas V'Shalom, uh, Looks for pain? Few things you can say about it. Few things you can say about it. When a person understands their mission in the world, like David the Melech did, and they know that everything is from a Kadosh Baruch Hu, Then they understand what the Baal Shem Tov said when he said, if I go up to Shemaim and they tell me I'm going to Gehenom, I'm jumping in. He said, Kodarav, why would you jump into Gehenom after you were Hasid, Sadiq, everything good, they're going to take you to Gehenom? He says, you're not understanding. 
all my life, all I wanted to do is to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu and do His will. When I go up to Shemaim, they're going to say, listen, you are going to go to Gainom. All I'm going to have is one question for them. Is this the will of Hashem? If they say yes, I'm jumping in. Why? Because my whole life was just serving Hashem. My whole life is serving Hashem, meaning even if suffering, that's what Hashem wants me to do, that's it, that's, that, that's what I want to do. Now, of course, we're not at that level to go and say, oh, I'm going to want to suffer for Hashem, and Hashem doesn't need you to suffer for Him. But the point being is, is that this helps us understand what David Melech said. David Melech says, everything is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. My whole life, my whole goal is to get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Sometimes I get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu when I see blessings. Sometimes I get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu when I see Shefa, I see all types of good stuff. But you know when I get really close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Kirvat Elohim Litov. When I see judgment, when I see difficulty. Why? Because I have nothing else interrupting my vision when there's difficulty. When there's good, there's the house, I'm focused on the house, and I need a new chandelier, and you know what, this furniture, it's not good for this house, and I have new friends now because they're new neighbors, and they're richer than the last neighbors, and this, and that, and do, and da, ti. All this different mumbo-jumbo that surrounds the blessing clouds the judgment sometimes. Clouds the clarity sometimes. Sometimes I remember it's from a Kadosh Baruch Hu, but you know what? You know when I really remembered HaKadosh Baruch Hu? When I was in agonizing pain and nobody wanted to be my friend. When I was alone and no one wanted to be my friend, that's when I was close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So you know what? If that's what it takes to get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kirvat Elohim Litov. I'd rather have a difficulty if that's what it takes. But that's an Eved Hashem. That's a person that's servant of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But how do we relate? A person needs to understand. Kirvat Elohim Litov sometimes tells us that in order to get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's exactly like Sonny said. It has to be judgment. It has to be judgment person needs to get problems. Coronavirus made some people question their life. Unfortunately, not enough. Why? It's still here and it's getting worse. If it got enough people to do tshuva, it would leave. Because would make it disappear from the world. The financial crisis that's coming is going to be the worst thing the world has ever seen. When it comes, only a Kadosh Baruch Hu knows. Surely that's going to make a lot of people lose their mind, but nonetheless will also help people get closer to Hashem. The Holocaust made certain people leave, but many, many people get closer. Destruction of the Bet HaMikdash made many people die, but nonetheless many people got closer. The point being is that if you look at the most connected people to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's usually the people that are poor, people that are struggling, People that are having a difficult time, if they have a vessel for the truth. Because if a person doesn't have a vessel for the truth, they can easily go to idolatry, or they can become an atheist, or they can become something else. But if they have a vessel for the truth, 
then through that difficulty they'll connect to Hashem even deeper hence the reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself taught the Torah by telling people about the difficulty more than half of the Torah talks about punishment if you do this, good you don't do it Punishment one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ta, ta, dozens and dozens of punishments. Every parasha has a death penalty. Every parasha has punishments. Every parasha has something bad happen. No exceptions. Every parasha has something bad happen. Kadosh who's constantly reminding us that there's a consequence to our actions. Why? When you know there's a consequence, it gets you closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He told Cain, Cain, good means you'll fulfill your, your uh, mission in the world. You'll be something very special. No good, there's a whole place designated for people like that, that I call Genom. You choose. Avraham Avinu, who was by himself in the world. Everybody else was an idol worshiper. Everybody else was an idol worshiper. Chamim said, how is everybody else an idol worshiper? When he went to war against the four kings, he brought 318 soldiers with him. So at least he had 318 people that weren't idol worshippers, right? Chamim said, no, why did it say 318? 318 is the numerical value of Eliezer. All the idols won. Avraham and Eliezer. Everybody else is an idol worshiper. So now he's trying to get everybody to come on board, leave their idolatry, become believers in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He's helping the guys. Sarai Menu is helping the girls. How is he helping them? He says, listen, you can do Birkat Amazon, get the food for free. Or, you don't do Birkat Amazon, not only will you pay cash for it here, but also, let me tell you about Genom. And you start teaching about Genom. Moshe Rabbeinu left Egypt with Am Yisrael. Took almost two months to get from Egypt to Mount Sinai. What do you do for two months? What do you talk about? What do you talk about for two months? You're preparing for Matan Torah. You're getting the Torah. What are you going to talk about? Oh, Egypt, yeah... Paro, Hela, okay, fine. What else? We see that we got a couple of mitzvot. We got a couple of mitzvot on the way. We got Shabbat on the way. We got Rosh Chodesh. We got a couple of mitzvot on the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai. But how do you convince me to keep these mitzvot? Chamim say, Moshe Rabbeinu, between Gumam and Shabbat, between Egypt and Mount Sinai, Told Am Yisrael, here's some of the mitzvot, there's a down payment. Shem is going to give us a present, there's going to be much more. That's what we have. Oh, and by the way, for all you guys who don't want it, there's a, let me tell you about Genom. Start teaching about Genom. Two months shiur about Genom. Two months shiur about Genom, not three hours. Two months shiur about Genom. All of the prophets had different teachings about it. All of the Chachamim 
throughout the generations have spoken about it in one form or another. Sometimes, they wouldn't specifically use the word genom, but simply would teach you certain things that if a person understood how thin the line is between reward and punishment, you'd simply get scared to death. Arabi again, Allah used to say, a simple statement that would scare any person that's Baghdad, that has a little bit of brain. What's the statement? He says, it could take you 70 years to earn Olam Abba, but one second to lose it. One second to lose it. It's 100% emit. 70 years to earn Olam Abba. One second, Shemishmo, to lose it. Why? 70 years you're doing mitzvot. Keep Shabbat, keep Tarat Mishpacha, Kisui Rosh, Kisui this. You learn the Kola, you learn this, you learn that, you do everything. But you finish off on a bad end. You finish off on a bad end. A Mechalel Shabbat, an idol worshiper, go make a commercial for one of these idol worshiping missionaries. Promote their filth. And die the next day. Finished. What about seven years of mitzvot? Chaval. What do you mean? Don't I get a reward for them? No. Some chachamim say if a person is not tzaddik, he doesn't get reward for any of the mitzvot. He gets punished for all of them. Meaning that there are some chachamim that explain things that the line between reward and punishment is so thin, they don't even need to tell you about genom. It's already scarier. So how is that going to help people? You have a world that's full of falsehood and everybody knows it it's become common terminology just call fake news it's become common terminology to not believe the general message whether the general message is coming from the media or from the government or from teachers or from this meaning people are very well aware that they're being lied to left and right which means that people are although they're gullible they are willing to hear the other side because they know that it is possible that this trustworthy entity is a liar because that exists in the world and usually the bigger the lie the bigger the liar he was most trustworthy. So the fact that that's out there already gives us a, at least some type of a possibility to s- sneak in there and help people re-educate themselves. Because there's one option that Sani and all of you agreed on, myself included, which is that a Kadosh Baruch could simply make life hell. 
much worse than what it is now. You could simply bring another holocaust. America can turn into Nazi Germany overnight, which is not such a far-fetched idea. Israel can join them because there's many Nazis there also. And all of the people will simply run for survival. You can easily do that. Cause starvation, two seconds. Epidemic, two seconds. Financial crisis where all the assets are worth nothing, two seconds. He could do all of that. But he didn't. Meaning that he's giving us another chance. More opportunity. The Gemara Masechah says, When did HaKadosh Baruch Hu decide to destroy the Bet HaMikdash with millions and millions of people? Some Chachamim say there were more people in the Bet HaMikdash in Yerushalayim than there are in the world today. So much so that the amount of Jews that died in the Bet HaMikdash, literally they built walls with it. And they didn't have to fertilize the ground for years because of how much blood went into the ground from Jewish blood. Millions and millions of people. When did HaKadosh Baruch officially decide to get this disaster to happen? When the Prophet came to him and said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you're going to destroy all of them, they're your kids. He said, yes, they're my kids, but they're not my kids. They're not serving me. Serving idols, serving themselves, serving everything else. As long as I know that there's a way for them to come back to me, then yeah, I have more patience. But there is no way. So Jeremiah says to him, No, but surely there are tzaddikim in the world. They'll teach them. They'll teach them the truth. These tzaddikim, they know Torah. They know all Torah. They know written Torah. Some of them are, are great people. A lot of great people lived in that time. They're going to teach them. The Gemara in Masechich says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Jeremiah, Go from place to place, and if you find me a single person that's teaching the truth to the extent that that's going to get people to do tshuva, it'll save everybody. What's the truth? Teaching them, teaching them about Alachot Shabbat? Teaching them about how to uh, be uh, nice to your friend? Hard Musal. Reward punishment. Jeremiah went from place to place and started crying. Crying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, say, Anshemu Avadu. There's no more people of truth. What people of truth? People that tell the truth. No people that have enough emunah in HaKadosh Baruch Hu to tell people there's a reward, which means fulfilling your purpose and ultimately going to Olam Abba, or there's Genom. One or two, pick one. There's no more. No more people teaching about that. And at that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to destroy the Bet HaMikdash and kill millions and millions of people, much, much worse than the Holocaust. And the same thing happened in the second Bet HaMikdash. And the same thing happened in the Spanish Inquisition. And the same thing happened in Britain a thousand years ago, 900 years ago. And the same thing happened in the Holocaust. What do you think, in the, in the Holocaust 70, 80 years ago? There wasn't some tzaddik going to Hashem saying, No, but give more time, give more time, give more time. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Go, go find me. 
Go find me a way to get them to do tshuva. Go find me a way to get six million people to do tshuva. So many of them were atheists. So many of them were intermarried. So many of them were going against the Shem and creating a tragedy after another. I speak to people that are two, three, four generations removed from their ancestors, their complete goyim. Their great-grandfather was a rabbi. Their great-grandfather was a Talmud Chacham. Their great-grandfather was a Jewish person. Right now they're 100% goyim according to Allah because the mothers and this and that. 100% goyim, but they want to return. How? It all started during that time. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Madu Abati Venish, I came, but there was nobody here. There's nobody here. There's nobody here. So now, Rabotai Karim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu can make a Shemishmo. But since we know that people are willing to hear out the other side, they're already tune their ears to the point where they say listen most of the stuff that's out there is garbage it's fake news they don't even want to believe the real news anymore which means Rabotai that this in itself is a chesed Hashem why? Because unlike the previous generation where people were simply tuning themselves to make themselves numb. They were intentionally tuning themselves to make themselves numb to the truth. Reform were growing like mold. Conservative were growing like cockroaches. Everywhere you saw this. But now you're seeing reform and conservatives start to shrink. Even though they have a lot of money, the number of people are shrinking. The number of members are shrinking. It's constantly being reported. Either people are completely abandoning them and being just nothing, or they're joining Orthodox or something. Like something is happening or they're becoming Christians. But they're not staying the same because people are just, they're not buying the same garbage that they were willing and looking for in the past. And I think this is one of the kindnesses of Hashem because since people are looking, actively looking for the truth, that's really all you have to do. Do everything you possibly can to share the truth with people, but the truth that HaKadosh Baruch Hu shares. Not the truth that is going to tiptoe around their feelings and tell them, listen, I don't want to hurt you, and I don't want to offend you, and I don't want to this, and I don't want to that. Why? We have to start looking at everybody as they're literally in critical condition. Could be a religious person. Could be a person that has keep on. Could be a person that goes to Beknesset. But he doesn't really believe that a Kadosh Bahu runs the world. Which, according to statistics that came out about four years ago, half of the modern Orthodox out there do not believe in Ashgachah Pratit, which is divine providence, which makes them 100% kufrim. person doesn't believe divine providence, means that Hashem is watches everything, has no share of the world to come.
goes to the Knesset, donates, puts on tefillin. Allah Abba comes, closed. Many people do not understand that they are in critical condition. So HaKadosh Baruch is trying to do whatever he can without making it an official holocaust. A hundred years ago you had the Spanish flu. Killed a lot of people. Not necessarily so many Jews, but it killed a lot of people. The Jews were supposed to learn from those natural disasters that it was really meant for them. It's a rebuke for them. That's what the Chafetz Chaim said. Anytime that there's a natural disaster, that's in the Gemara also. Anytime there's a natural disaster, Am Yisrael is also always supposed to look at it as that, oh, this was supposed to be meant for me. It's a rebuke for me to do tshuva. That's why it happened in Zimbabwe. That's what happened in Egypt. That's why it happened in India. Not because of just the Indians being bad or the Zimbabweans being... No, no. It's also because I'm not doing enough. Because if I was doing enough, I would produce enough Kedusha in the world that even the Goim would be protected. So, when there's natural disaster in the world, it's a message for Am Yisrael. A hundred years ago, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent Spanish flu. A lot of people died, but we didn't do Chuba yet. The world wars kept getting worse. Many more people died. In this case, Jews. Right now we have a whole series of wars that happened over the last 30-40 years with the exception of the Vietnam War most of the wars were relatively small in comparison to the uh, Holocaust right now we see that there's a lot of possibilities of war and not necessarily the same type of war as it was in the past more technology involved which can create more damage but we also see that there is a spiritual war the missionaries right now are attacking everywhere. There's just a story that just got uh, publicized that the biggest humanitarian organization in Israel is a missionary organization. And there's going to be a story, Be'ezad Hashem, coming out soon of a corrupt group of rabbis working with missionaries. I know involved in the whole thing and trying to help as much as possible to help the victims but this is going to come out very soon it's a Mamasha tragedy it'll come out probably possibly in the next week it's a disaster in half the ramifications are massive we're talking about people that think that they're Jewish and they're not Jewish fake conversions Missionaries teaching in synagogues, all types of garbage. So you see that the spiritual war is a possible physical war. Financially, there was recently a uh, uh, news that uh, the biggest uh, real estate company in China is about to declare bankruptcy. If they declare bankruptcy, it'll be bigger bankruptcy than Lehman Brothers that happened in 2008. Which means that it will have worldwide ramifications. So you see that there is a possible financial war. And everybody already knows that the market is due for a crash. For many reasons. Number one, it's been going up for too many years. without a. Number two, statistically speaking, you see that the companies are way overvalued. Number three, 
you see that there's a bunch of really big companies that have already gone down 20%, which is actually symbolic of a recession, meaning we're already in a decline. We just don't realize it yet because the indexes are uh, uh, reporting things that are being misconstrued. And really, the, the, the biggest thing is that none of this stuff makes sense. None of this stuff makes sense. If, if to, to add the cherry on top that's probably more valuable than all of them, if you look at the history of crashes, it's almost a uh, pattern, like a precise pattern that happens on a Shemitah year, which is what we just started. Shemitah year, crashes is when happened. It's unbelievable. I saw statistics. I, I couldn't believe it. But it's true. I know. I've been in the market. I know it. Wish I knew what was done in the business. So now, you see that there is financial. There's political issues. There is all types of spiritual stuff. A lot of stuff happening. So you have to realize, okay, Kadosh Baruch is warming things up. Meaning, we don't have that much time. We have time to do whatever we can do, but I don't know how much time we have. We, we, we have to do... So, when Kadosh Baruch positioned the world in such a way that he made everybody's ears tune in to things that are the opposite of what they're used to, people are just more interested in the opposite of the norm now. More Christians are interested in the truth rather than what they've been hearing in the church for their whole life. More Jews are interested in their original heritage even though they're two, three generations already completely removed. More people are questioning the things that their rabbis are telling them uh, because it just doesn't jive with reality. It's just more is being asked for. So we could sit on our hands and do absolutely nothing, and be charged as murderers. Every person that knows the truth and does nothing about it will be charged as a murderer, as a part of the crime itself. Why? Same thing of what happened at the righteous people that lived in the time of Jeremiah. They kept Torah, they kept mitzvot, and I'm sure they knew more than everybody else in the world today. But they all got punished. Why? They did not do the one job that would have saved everybody, which is to tell people the truth. Now, telling the people the truth today is easier than ever. In those days, you had to either write a letter, a book of some kind, a scroll of some kind, or go speak to people. Today, you don't even have to do that. Simply, you could share a link. You give a CD. You give a USB. You invite them to a lecture. You uh, literally, you could just have us do all the work for you. All you got to do is press buttons. That's all you got to do today. Press button to donate. Press button to share. Press button to uh, to to invite. It's just buttons today. It's literally like a uh, much like it's like suicide not to do stuff like this. That's why Rabbi Mizrahi Shichyeh got so upset at one point that he told all of his audience, "Do not watch my lectures if you're not going to share them." Because you're just simply too selfish to be a student, to, to call yourself my student. And I 100% agree with him. If you're too selfish to share the lectures, don't watch our lectures. Why? You'll get charged for it. You'll get punished for it. You'll get punished for watching our lectures. 
It's like having the cure and not sharing it. There's no greater murderer than that. You have the cure. You don't want to share with people. Oh no, but I don't want them to think and because they're not religious and because of this and because of that. Okay, when you see them get burned in Gainom and you're right next to them, what, are you going to still use the same excuse? Oh, because of this and because of that? you got to do something. Now, if we continue doing the same things that we did in the past, obviously it didn't work then, it's not going to work now. But we see what has worked. Over the last few years, we see that the hard stuff that woke people up, whether it's Tikkun Abrit, Chibuta Kevir, Genom, all of those different types of subjects, they, for whatever reason or another, people are more interested in that type of stuff. They're interested in things that are the exact opposite of the sugar coating they got their whole life. Pedeplaim. 50 years. They've been dumbifying Judaism to no end. So much so that today the average Jew thinks that Genom is a Christian belief. The average Jew thinks that Genom, punishment, is not even a Jewish belief. That's how much Judaism has been dumbified. All of Christianity's truth came from Judaism. But yet, people think that Genom and hell and all the different descriptions that you have for it is a Christian thought that's false and everyone is going to heaven, which is completely contradictory to all logic. Again, you don't need to delve into Genom and think about Genom all the time, especially if you're doing the right thing. But to live life without any understanding that there is a consequence for your actions does not make you a sane person. Because if you simply operated that way in society, they would put you in some type of mental institution. If you sped up in the highway and a cop pulled you, hey, what are you doing? What are you driving 150 miles for? I feel like it. What do you mean by the speed limit? No, that's for people that believe. I don't believe in speed limits. I don't believe in speed limits. I think it's fake news, speed limits. Hey, why are you hating people? I feel like it. What do you mean? You're not allowed to hate people in this country. I don't believe in the laws. I don't believe in the Constitution. I don't believe in it. Hey, what are you evading taxes for? I don't believe in taxes. So why do you live in a country? I feel like I believe anywhere. The world is everybody's. Kumbaya. The world is the plants. The plants don't pay taxes. So I don't want to pay taxes. I'll plant. I'll plant. I'm a tree. Look, I'm a tree today. I don't believe in it. They're going to put you in a mental institution. Why? Because it's normal to understand that there's consequences for things. So how come there's consequence for everything else except for the mission in life? So people understand that there's something wrong in the water, in the spiritual water of the world. There's something wrong. Hence the reason why they're looking for something. Unfortunately, they're finding a lot of garbage in Christianity. Because they talk about gay no more than Jews do. 
So you see here that the falsehood has made itself look more true because it's presenting truth inside its falsehood. While the truth is scared to tell the truth and thereby looks like it's false. This is why we have to do everything we possibly can to go back to basic roots, teach everything we've been doing so far, continue expanding on it, but it needs the help of people. People have to take responsibility, just like we have some people that we know that literally is one guy we know, every Friday in Eretz Yisrael, he doesn't work that day, he spends seven hours giving out stuff, giving out CDs, giving out flyers, giving out uh, stuff. It's his day off of work, he uses it for Kiruv. I have another guy right now, I have another guy, he's in Minnesota right now. Why is he in Minnesota? On business? No. He's doing Kiruv in Minnesota. Where does he live? He lives here. But he went to Minnesota to go give Kiruv stuff over here. Kiruv stuff over there. Why? So listen, people over there probably got damaged and poisoned by Manus Friedman. So let me try to help to up them. And before that he was in Texas, in Dallas, in Houston, another place. He's, he's on a Kiruv mission. I have another couple... They went across country, started giving out flyers everywhere and made cute videos. You guys may know them. So, all types of people are taking initiative to try to do something. But none of us can say, oh, I'm doing enough. If you have no time, that means you're working. So it should be money. If you have no money, then you have to have time. If you have no money and no time then you have to have some type of skill, unless you're a turtle. And if you're a turtle, we can put you on the website and at least sell you. (laughs) There has to be something that you're useful for. Because if you continue watching the lectures, attending the lectures, but keep everything to yourself, you're going to get punished for it. Now, Since you guys are getting a little tired, I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to tell you a shiru about something very interesting. What happens to people who don't listen to Hashem? Baruch Hashem has nothing to do with any of you at this stage, as long as you stay this way. It has nothing to do with me at this stage, as long as we stay this way. But just in case the Yetzirah comes to you as a good-looking girl or a good-looking guy or a good-looking stolen money or a good-looking Lashonara. Lashonara is so delicious. In case it comes to you before, think about this you. So far, we discussed a few things. We discussed a big sin that leads people to lose their Olam such as desecrating Shabbat. We discussed Tikkun Abrit, which is one of the worst epidemics in the world today, if not the worst, the whole issue of immorality. We discussed 
that eventually if people don't wake up, they'll go to a place called Genom. But before that, they'll go to the grave. It's called Chibut Kevel. And there's a movie that came out recently, Baruch Hashem. They woke up a few people. But during the series of Digeret Agra, the Gaon Vilna scared the life out of us. Where he told his wife, if you are going to speak idle words, misuse the gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you of speech, or make all types of other sins, you won't even have the merit of going to Genom. You'll go to a place called Kafakela. Now, what is Kafakela? Before we get to Kafakela, we have to ask ourselves, are Tzadikim afraid of Genom? There was a guy to build a big house in Eretz Yisrael. And he was an Avrich, but a rich Avrich, made a lot of money. And he came to the Rav Steinemann, Allah Shalom, who lived in a little box, practically. His house was half the size of the sukkah. Rav Steinemann, Kodesh Kodeshi, millions of dollars go through his hand running the yeshivot. He lives... In a little tiny place, his desk and his, his bed are the same thing. Gets out of his bed, there's a, de- there's a little stender over there, he starts learning to hard until there's no more energy to live. All day, all night, 100 years. What does he eat? Potato. Rav Steinman, right behind Mike over there. Ish Kodesh. So, when you want to know what does the Torah think about something? Who are you going to go to? Somebody that t- tells you that Hashem loves everybody? Or somebody that learns Torah non-stop? And I go to the Gdol So Avrech goes to the Gdol and he says, Kodarav, I have a little bit of a dilemma. I want to ask Da Torah about this. It says in the Gemara that Rabbi Hanina was... Kodesh Kodeshim, but he was poor. The whole world got their sustenance because of Rabbi Hanina's holiness, but Rabbi Hanina himself was eating Kruvim, Caribs. Marash poverty. One day his wife says, We don't even have the Caribs. Go pray to your boss. Tell him to give us. Meaning, go pray to Hashem. Tell him to give us a parasa. Meaning that until this point, Rabbi Kharina was so happy with a share of Caribs, he never even prayed for Parnassah. He knew whatever Kalosbach was giving him must be the best possible thing available in the world. There cannot be something better than these Caribs. That's Rabbi Kharina ben Dosa. But now his wife says, Ask your boss, ask your creator. Give us some panasa, because even that we don't have. Okay. He went to the field, prayed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was so enamored by his tzaddik to pray to him for panasa that he gave him a, a leg of a golden table 
that's in Olamaba, he gave him one of the legs, an entire leg full of gold. The whole thing is gold. From Olamaba, came down from Shemai miraculously. After he finally somehow maneuvered to get this into the market, said, listen, we don't have enough money to pay for such a thing, but uh, whatever you want, give us some time to sell it. Here's some money to go buy groceries. He buys a bunch of things, comes home. Rabbi Hanina buys a lot of groceries, everything. His wife is, where did you get all this stuff? Come on, honey, let's do Kiddush already. I'll tell you after. Wife says, I'm not eating until you tell me. Where did you get the money? No. Question is, what does she think? He stole it? She wants to know what's the price. Why? Everything has a price. What did you give for this? Why? I'm not going to eat. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, maybe you agree to pay that price. Who says, I agree? Rabbi Khanna says to her, I prayed to Akadosh Bechu in the leg of a table came. She says to him, Chas v'shalom. I'm not going to eat this food until you promise me that you're going to go and return the leg. What do you mean return the leg? Shamayim gives. They don't take back. Says you're going to pray and Hashem's going to take it back. She says, but why? She says, I don't want to show up after a lifelong of sacrifices of you learning Torah and poverty and we show up to Shamayim and we're missing a leg in our Olam Abba. So no, don't worry, it's okay, Hashem gives Parnassah. Absolutely not. Okay, let's ask Da'at Torah. Who's Da'at Torah more than Rabbi Kharina? Rabbi Akadosh, the Nasi Israel. The President of Israel, Rabbi Akadosh, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. They go to his house. Middle of the night, Rabbi, we have a question. The Rabbanit is a little concerned because this, this and that happened. Rebbe says, ah, your Rabbanit's a big tzaddikah, but tell her, don't worry, whatever you're missing in Olam Abba, I'll give you for my share. Rabbi Chayna tells his wife, and the wife was Talmidah Chachama. She was Gdolado. Tells him, tell Rebbe, thank you very much, but you cannot give something you don't have. Imagine this. You tell the Rabbi of the generation, you can't give what you don't have. Meaning, you don't have a golden leg to give me. Not because you're not a tzaddik, but my husband's a bigger tzaddik than you. How is he a bigger tzaddik than you? Rabbi Chayna was scared to go. He said, no, no, you go tell him. I'm not going to go tell Rabbi that, uh, what you're saying. He'll burn me with his eyes. So she says, Rabbi, I'm sorry, but you cannot give what you're, you don't have. You, Agdoladol, Tzaddik, one of the descendants of David the Melech, and you learn Torah like a king. You have entire slew of horses and fields and cities, endless amount of money, you're a big Baal Chesed Tzaddik. But my husband, his whole life he learned Torah from poverty. And we both know you cannot compare the two. Rebbe says, Tzadkami Meni, she's right. 
I don't have shoulders big enough to give you something for me. You're a big old other than me. So now you have to go listen to your wife. Go return the leg. How are you going to return the leg? Go pray to Hashem to go take back. Yeah. Kamala says there's a bigger miracle happen. Akadosh Bahu took back the leg. Why? Because Rabbi Khanina's tzadikah wife was concerned that they're going to be missing a leg. What does this have to do with this Avrech? Comes this Avrech to Rav Steinemann that lives in a little tiny house, not bigger than my sukkah. Probably half the size even. And says to Rav Steinemann, Kvod Rav, we know this Gemara, and I have a problem now. Why? I just built a big house, three floors in Eretz Yisrael, right in the best area, on the beach, on the ocean, three floors, with a pool, with a this, with a that. And I'm thinking now that I finished after all this big investment and money and time and everything, it's such a beautiful house, this must be a reward from Shemaim, and I'm scared, maybe it's going to be one of the legs to my table in Shemaim in Gan Eden. What should I do? Rav Steinemann looks at him, and then he looks at one of the Ozrim, one of the helpers of Rav Steinemann, that's always there. And he says, look at that. Here you have a Jew that's over 90 years old, talking about himself. A Jew that's over 90 years old, that all day he learns Torah, and all day he thinks about if there's even a small chance that he's not going to go to Gainom. And all day he's thinking about Gainom and how there's no way that he has to go. He doesn't have to go. And yet we have this youngster over here that's certain that he's going to Gan Eden and already is considering the table that he has in Gan Eden. How different can things be? 90 years he's learning Torah, he's thinking, no, I'm definitely going to gain home. No, I'm not going to, going, not going. But this guy is sure already he's going to heaven. He's already thinking about the furniture he has in Gan Eden. That's how much Chachamim was scared of Genom. Why were they so scared of Genom? Because they understood how thin the line is. How thin the line is between making a mistake. And they understood really how significant the punishment is that even if you're there for a second, it's, 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 it's a nightmare of all nightmares. Rav Spadron in his Sefer about his life story he was a, uh, his brother-in-law was one of the G'dolei Ador, Rav Shlomo Ayrbach. And uh, many times his stories include the Ayrbach family. They were very, very close. They were family. He says that Rav Ayrbach, Allah Shalom, he told them about that there used to be a tzaddik. A tzaddik in the, uh, in the community and going to the Sharech uh, Chesed, Bet Midrash, 
tzaddik by name of Rav Yosef Shimsholovitz, who was also known as the Rav Yosef Shasel. Why was he called Rav Yosef Shasel? Because he knew the entire Shas by heart. And he also knew the entire Rambam by heart. And he also knew the Tubet Yosef by heart. He knew a lot of things by heart. Mamash. Sefer Torah, walking. Now, if somebody knows that much Torah, are they still scared of Gehenom? Now, we just heard from Rav Steinemann. What about a person you never heard of? Most people never heard of Rav Shasim. One time, when he was already older, Rav Oyerbach sees him in the mikveh. On a Friday, day of Shabbat, and he sees that Rav Yosef Shasel is uh, in his towel, shaking. So much so that his teeth are chattering. So he thought, maybe something happened. He says, can I help you with something? He says, no, no, it's nothing, 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 nothing. And he goes back to shaking, shaking, shaking. A few minutes have passed. He thought maybe something happened. Maybe he doesn't have the strength to dress himself. So Rav Oyobach just took it upon himself to just start dressing him. Putting his clothes on him. But he still continued to shake. He says to him, what happened? No, no, it's nothing, it's nothing. It's okay, it must be something. It's no, it's just that the guy that went into the mikveh after me, he dipped his foot into the mikveh, which is a warm mikveh, and he said, Oi, it's hot like genom. So then I thought about Gehenom and all the things that I know about Gehenom. He thought about Gehenom. He thought about what he read about in Gehenom from all the Shasta he knows by heart and all the Gmarod and all this and all that. And he is scared to death. Because he thought about it because somebody just mentioned the word Gehenom. He didn't mention all this. Mention it. When he got old already, he was so scared that he would invite young people to test him. Test them on what? If he still knows everything by heart. Test me on the page. Okay, and he would recite to them the entire Shulchan Aruch. He would recite to them the entire uh, Taz. The Magen uh, Avraham. Everything by do do everything. You just why scared of Gehenom? So I need to make sure when I get there, have something, have something to say. Okay, I, I tried. Meaning that the more the people knew, the more scared they were. Which means the less people know. Less scared they are. Or the bigger the criminals. And that's what it seems like at times. 
that there are times that there are certain people that are just outright criminals, but that's usually speakers that distort the truth for their own self-interest. So, because we can't really change the world, change the speakers, and speaking against them helps some people, but it doesn't necessarily help everybody. The only thing we can do is continue to educate the public about things that they don't know about. Tana Deve Eliyahu Eliyahu Anavi In Perek Gimel In Seder Eliyahu Zuta He says the following Beshloshat Dvarim Yistakel Adam Bekol Yom person should look at three things every day. The morning that he goes into the bathroom. This is a reminder to see that your way is the same way as that animal. There's not much difference between you and the animal. In fact, the animal doesn't usually go crazy like people when it needs to go to the bathroom. Sometimes a person needs to go to the bathroom, the whole neighborhood knows. Oh, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta, where, where, he, ha, he, breaks down the door, yells, screams, ha, yeah. You ever see a horse go crazy? No, I gotta go, open up, yeah. start screaming at people. You ever see a cow lose their mind? No. Bull? Lion? No. They gotta go, they go. Not screaming, not growling, not biting, nothing. In fact, sometimes, if you eat certain things, could be that the manure of the animal is much uh, less smelly than, uh, than, than the person. You're not going to see people use this fertilizer. But the manure is. So, Eliyahu Navi says, what well, I think you should look at every day, the fact that you have no reason whatsoever to be an arrogant person. There's not much difference between you and the animal. Second thing is, anytime they take blood from you. In those days, they used to do bloodletting. Today, it's usually more blood donations. You go to blood donation or you check your blood for sicknesses and so on. Person blood gets taken out of them, usually they think, oh, maybe I should eat, oh, maybe I should rest. What are you really supposed to be thinking? 
Eliyahu Navi says, when they take blood from you, remember, you're flesh and blood. You're flesh and blood. You're going to be here today, gone tomorrow. Stop making yourself to be such a big deal. Stop thinking that you're uh, such a uh, special gift to society. Relax. You're here today. Do good things. The only thing that's going to survive in this world is the good things you do. And the bad things you do. You as a body in the flesh won't last this. One day goes. Your flesh and blood. B'sha'ash umed alamet. Omrim ro. Re'ele chanata olech. And then the third thing is, when he sees a dead person, she think, look where you're going. Meaning that a person should constantly think about, at some point, I have to go there. When is that some point? We would all like to be optimistic and think, oh, after 120 Realistically speaking, not everybody lasts 120. In fact, I saw a statistic once, I have it on my computer, that was done by the U.S. government, that although the median age is... Yeah, please. Huh? I mean, no, but much a long time ago. What time is it? Uh... They say that, uh, thank you. They say that, uh, if a person, if a person looks at the median age in society, how long people survive and so on, it looks like things have improved. Average person lives 70-something years. And it looks like optimistic because there's medicine, there is a uh, ways to live longer and so on. It's nice, it's very uh, inspiring that people are going to live longer. Either way, in the best case scenario, they say, no, the average person doesn't live 120 years. They live 70-something years. Maybe longer, but statistically speaking, probably not. The truth is, though, it's not even that. Why is it not even that? Because you see from that same statistic, very, very big study they did, that literally more than half of people die a tragic death. Meaning... If they would have lived and died from natural causes, yeah, they would have lived 70-something years. But more than half the people don't live like that. They lie from car accidents and diseases and all types of tragedies. Meaning that the reason why the sages and the prophets constantly mention, think about death, think about genom, think about this, think about that, is because literally it could be any minute. Now why do I want to be so morbid to constantly think about this? It's not for the sake of Chash being depressed. 
So a person thinks, oh, I'm dead, 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 dead. It's not necessarily, it's not a positive thing. Unless that mindset is, this life is a corridor. Real life begins after this life. How would I live in the real life is based on how I live and manage my life in the corridor. If I do good based on the Torah in this corridor, then the eternity will be good. Much better than any good or pleasure can be in this world. If I mess around in this corridor and I focus too much about building my house in this corridor and not so much about the house that's in the permanent uh, world, then I could miss the whole boat. Hence the reason of why a person needs to constantly think like David Amalek, where he was constantly talks about in Tehillim about death. Was he a negative person? Was he a depressed person? No. Is that he constantly mentions that he knows the day is going to come and his whole life is simply a preparation for the eternity. When a person knows that this life is a place of work, a place where I need to acquire mitzvot, acquire good deeds, take as many as you can, take another opportunity, another bracha, another this, another that. I don't really want it, but I'm going to do it because it's good. It's good. Just keep taking more mitzvot. Then I'm living my life in such a fashion that I'm not thinking about just a uh, this world. I'm thinking about the next world. I'm thinking about how to live this life for the sake of the next one. Unfortunately, the wicked people do the exact opposite. Completely ignore the next life for the sake of pleasure in this life. Hence the reason why the tzaddikim, the Rav Steinemann, the Rav Shasel, the, the, the Rav Ovadia, the, the Ben Ishchai, the, uh, uh, all the other tzaddikim will mention momentarily, constantly mentioned afterlife. Especially the judgment part. There's literally very little material spread around all over the place about heaven. Very, very little. But judgment, it's literally thousands and thousands of sources. Like, we have gone through through all the shiurim with, with Rav Ephraim and, 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 and think, I mean, there's at least five to ten thousand sources, different books, different works of sages, just talking about genom, kafakela, punishment, horrible, ta ta, all this stuff. Like at least five to ten thousand places. Like it's not like some uh, unique find like I actually used to think years ago. I used to think, oh, Genom is just in this book, Rashid Chokhmah, it's a little section. No, it's not. It's like literally there's thousands of sources. Thousands. Most of them are obviously in Hebrew and in different, uh, they're not in English, but nonetheless, there is a lot. There are some in English. But most people either don't know about them, or they skip through them, or whatever the case may be. We're going to go through some of them, and some of the stuff that I have is actually in English for anybody who wants to get it for themselves. But nonetheless, this is just a small, small, small microcosm of what's available out there. 
And why did all of these tzaddikim write about it? Because in order to rewire our brain to stop focusing about the building in this world and reposition it to focus on the next world, we have to constantly remind ourselves that this world is temporary and if we mess up and don't look at it that way, that's the risk. It's not just the risk of not going to heaven. Because the Perkins are going to say, you know what, listen, heaven for you is what? You're saying they're going to study Torah over there, Sadiqim. I don't know, it doesn't sound like heaven to me. That's what the Shah Meza said recently. I don't know, but you think people are learning Torah in heaven? That doesn't sound like heaven to me. Like, just gross distortions of Torah become standard in, in the mouths of the Rishayim. But the reality is, is that describing heaven to most people is, is, is simply a waste of time because they wouldn't understand that it's heaven. Because they're living for this world. The other Rasha, Manus, what does he say? This world is the Ikal. This world is the main thing. Everybody goes after this life, they all wait in some corridor in heaven, waiting to come back to this world. Like as if this world is the, like this is where you're supposed to be. This is the place to be. And God himself is going to bring himself to this world. He's a, literally, a, it's not even a new religion. It's a new craziness. But you have countless people follow those footsteps and drink that potion of poison. Why? Because there's not enough spreading of the truth. If there was, it would be easier to deal with. Because you'd have at the very least, okay, they have 50, 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 views on this one video, full of falsehood. And you have at least a million, double of truth, you could deal, you could take. But when there's more people that are dedicated to spreading falsehood than there are people dedicated to spreading the truth, then you have a problem. Can you open the film so he doesn't break the door? So that's why the Eliyahu Navi says, remember, this world is a corridor, it's a temporary place, and there are different things, different natures that Hashem instilled in you to remind you of that. One is the fact that you go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom just like an animal. And an animal has a uh, things that go into the body that perhaps don't have a smell at all. You have things that go into the body that smell good and end up bad. 
This is to show you that you're no better than an animal and there's no reason for you to think that you should be, that you are better than anybody else. Everything that you have, Hashem gave you, whether it's money, looks, uh, any type of talent, any thought, everything that you have, Hashem gave you. Everybody okay? Um, the door is fixed, or it's still uh, it's fixed. I'm trying to ignore it, but it kind of looks like you guys were nervous that we're stuck in the sukkah till next year. Second thing is, if that's not enough for a person, because the average person either doesn't think at all before they go to the bathroom, or they just think about how badly they need to go to the bathroom. So they're not thinking about the fact that they're animals or anything like that. Okay, fine. Next time you get a blood check. Think. You're flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, meaning that you're here today, gone tomorrow. And if that's not enough, one day, all of us will see at some point somebody that's not alive anymore. How does this all supposed to be uh, uh, understood by us? Comes Eliyahu Navi Zachul Etov and says, Translation says, I gave you three different things to think about. Three different things to think about in your nature. Kadosh says, I gave you the way that you digest. I gave you the way that your body's made up. And I gave you the fact that you'll see people that are dead. You'll know that people that are dead. Even if you don't see them, you'll see. You'll know that everybody dies at some point. Everybody, every child knows it. Every adult knows it. I gave you constant tools of communication to show you that this life is not permanent. And yet, you still did not do tshuva, he says... And not only you didn't do tshuva, instead, you spend your time speaking about waste, wasteful conversations. Talk about sports, talk about nonsense, talk about girls, boys, shopping, what dress did you buy, what cake did you make, what this, what shoe size you have, how much did you pay for your phone, which direction did you take to work, which highway, all this waste of time conversations. And on you it is written, And on you it's written, the stupidity of man leads him to sin, and then, then he's mad at Hashem for punishing him. Same thing as we spoke about earlier, his connection to this. Uh, why? Because you are living a stupid life, instead of think, taking the signs that Hashem gave you, of your nature of digestion, of your flesh, of the fact that everybody has knowledge that people die, instead of taking that as direct clarity, that 
this life is not permanent and you have to think about what happens after. Instead, you spend your time talking about things that mean absolutely nothing. Other people's money and other people's wives and other people's husbands and other, 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 except your life. You'll talk about everything except your own responsibility. And then you'll be upset that Hashem is punishing you. How could you be upset that Hashem is punishing you? Are you crazy? He says, and this is what you spend your time with. And not only that, you say lies non-stop. Non-stop you say lie, and you, and you make even more, uh, meaning when somebody says to you, Hey, how are you? Oh, everything's good. He says, you're a liar. Everything is not good. You're miserable. You're depressed. You don't even know why you're in this world. All you did is you're, you made money, made money. You finally got the money, and you want to kill yourself anyway. So you're a liar. You're, 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 even the fact that you wasted your whole life not saying not saying good things, and instead, all you're talking about is other people's money and making money and doing this and doing that. But there's no real mashmoud, there's no real significance to your life. And yet, you have the audacity that when somebody says, hey, how are you? They say, oh yeah, everything is great. You, to lie about that too and not actually tell the people the truth, don't follow my footsteps, my life is a complete waste. He says, you make another sin by not running away from, from sins, from, uh, from lies. And on top of that, you see other people doing good and they're getting close to Hashem they're doing tshuva and what do you do? you speak bad about them nah, he's fanatic he's crazy they're like a cult they're this, they're that it says you are looking at other people and you want bad things to happen to them why? because they're doing the right thing and you're doing the wrong thing so instead of taking the three signs that I gave you in your nature to remind you to do tshuva not only you don't do tshuva you end up continuing your life, fulfilling your desires, lying about how pleasurable it really is because it's really not, and hating the people that actually are doing tshuva. So, such a person, obviously everybody can understand, this is a person that's going to have a miserable judgment. Unfortunately, Abutai, if we ourselves don't do something about ourselves, and about other people, our judgment will not be very different. So, Chachamim say, in order for a person to truly understand where he should want to go, which is Gan Eden, he should also know Where's the possibilities too? Why? Rabbi Yisrael says, if a person truly understood how heavy the punishment is for somebody that violates the Torah, he would simply ask Hashem just not to send them there. Meaning, he wouldn't worry so much about heaven. He wouldn't worry at all about reward in this world. He would simply say to Hashem, just don't send me there. That's enough of a reward. For an entire life of servitude of Hashem. Now, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 152b,
is one of the sources we learn something new about the afterlife. Well, first, the Gemara talks about how the uh, wicked people go to Genom, the Neshama has to be laundered, this perhaps is the source that is uh, manipulated to make Genom sound like an easy-peasy laundry machine of some kind. But you'll see that if somebody reads the rest of the Gemara, it's as far from the truth as possibly can get. And one of the parts that shows it <clears throat> is the following. So it is with the Holy One, blessed is He, concerning the bodies of the righteous. He's pleased with the way they safeguarded their souls, and He says, Let them come in peace, and let them rest upon Him, upon their couches meaning their bodies, shall rest peacefully in the grave. And concerning their souls, their neshama, of the righteous people, he says, may the soul of my uh, master be bundled in the bundle of life. This is a pasuk that, uh, that uh, Abigail says to, uh, to David HaMelech. But what about the Reshaim, the Gemara says? God, you said about the Tzadikim, first you said the Reshaim, they go to Gehenom, their neshama is full of all types of uh, uh, damage that they made to the neshama, they have to be laundered, like as it has to be, you know, uh, cleansed and so on. And uh, like a garment has to be too, meaning just like a garment, if you put, let's say, a, uh, there's a little bit of fruit juice on it, you put a certain amount of cleaning and it comes out. If you put ink on it, a little more cleaning and it's out. But if uh, your kid comes up with tar all over his clothes, most likely you'll have to, if, if it's even possible to remove this tar from the clothes, it'll take a lot of work and a lot of laundering. Same concept with the neshama, that makes a lot of sins. If you made few sins like the righteous people, then yes, there is a laundering process that, uh, you know, that has to cleanse the soul of removing any stain of the perfect neshama to perfect it. But if you made a lot of sins... Uh, you lied, you cheated, violated Shabbat, committed adultery, uh, you raped, you stole, you with uh, a woman and she's nida, uh, which is uh, not different than being with a prostitute. You uh, did all types of things that are forbidden by the Torah. Each one of these things is a big stain. And if it's a karet, like waste, like uh, like chilul Shabbat, like being with a nida, uh, or any one of the forty-eight different karets. Uh, there's 36 in the uh, oral Torah and the Gemara and then there's 12 more in the Zohar any one of these karets these are not just states these are like little, little literally like uh, like infractions like these are like breakage so these things it's not a regular laundry machine it's a whole factory just for one time and if a person does that for many many years he violates Shabbat lives 50-60 years violating Shabbat each Shabbat he makes you know 
a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, a hundred thousand sins, meaning a hundred thousand, if he drove a car, he has probably a hundred thousand karetzins just for that one Shabbat. It's not like he violates Shabbat in the whole, it's one sin for the whole Shabbat. Every single time he violates Shabbat, it's a new karet. So literally, one person could just drive to the beach on Shabbat and literally end up the day with a million karet sins. So to clean that, it's not, oh yeah, shh, shh, finished, here you go, honey. Brand new white again, a little bleach. Oh, Habibi, it's, 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 you're talking about serious problems. Serious, serious problem takes a lot of effort. So I said, that's the laundering process. All depends on the magnitude of the sins. If they're righteous, on the other hand, both their soul and their body will be at rest, will be good, everything else. But then the Gemara says, no, 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 but we're more interested in Rishayim. Let's go back to the Rishayim. Tell us more. What is it just the laundry process? That's it? Just the Gainom? No. However, the bodies of the wicked, he says, who says? The prophet Isaiah. And Shalom, Amar Hashem Lareshaim. There shall not be no peace, says God to the wicked. Meaning, there is no such thing as rest and peace. Rest and peace is kfirah. Kfirah against the Torah. No such thing as rest and peace. Pasuk in the Torah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 22, And shalom amar Hashem l'reshaim. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. There is no such thing as rest and peace. Okay, that's the body. So the body we already know, goes to where? Chibut kever. He's going to have the worms, the maggots, all the angels take care of that body. That For that section, you guys can watch Chibut Kev, a movie. Enjoy it. Get scared at least once or twice every couple of months. You're never going to want to make another sin again. But if that's not enough, say, okay, that's just the body, you know. But the soul, the soul, how does a soul suffer? Like uh, Manus and company say, soul, uh, soul gets burned. Ha, 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 ha. Okay, let's see. Let's see. Avigal continues the sentence that she says to David Melech, which is in the book of Samuel 1, chapter 25, verse 29. And as for the soul of your enemy, may God sling it as from the hollow of a string. Kafakila. What is this? What is this Kafakila? Rabbi Eliezer says the soul of the righteous are ensconced beneath the heavenly throne. But the souls of the wicked are perpetually confined. What do you mean they're confined? They are trapped in kafakila. Meaning this is different than genom. This is before Genom, or could be part of Genom. But it's not the same thing as Genom, and we'll go into that. One of the things we learn is that there are ten different types of Kafakila. It's not just one, like it's mentioned in the Gemara, Pshat. There's ten different types of Kafakila. So what's going on with these? Says the Gemara, the souls of the wicked are perpetually confined and the angel stands at one end of the universe 
And another angel stands at the other end of the universe. And they sling the souls of the wicked back and forth to one another. As it is written in the end of that verse by Avigal to David Melech in the book of Samuel. And as for the soul of your enemy, may God sling it as from the hollow of a sling, kafakela. So here we see, kafakela is no picnic. You have two giant angels playing ping pong with the soul, while the whole way there's an interesting process that takes place also. It's not like a... Uh, a uh, roller coaster it goes, eee, no, it's not like that. Why? Because they're also coming with you the whole process. They're coming with the, not you guys, the Reshaim, they come with them the whole time and they give them a beating of a lifetime. Literally. The Gemara continues, Rabbi says to Rabbi Nachman, so, Both the uh, these souls, well, actually, it continues the point where it says these uh, souls. Who is the uh, angel <coughs> that takes care of these uh, souls? What's the name of this angel? It says Duma. Duma is one of the angels. That's uh, it's a name of an angel. It's really more of a name of a position. It seems like of a angel that takes care of the wicked people. So the verse, and the sources that will constantly come up throughout these other books that I brought here, are the main source from the Tanakh, is the book of Samuel 1, chapter 25, verse 29. That's a verse in the Tanakh that constantly mentions Kafakela. There's other places, but that's like the main one that's mentioned everywhere. The Gemara that's mentioned everywhere is the one I just mentioned to you, that's Masechet Shabbat. Page 152b. But then there's going to be others. Now, Kafakela, it's not a single place, but rather there are 10 different types of Kafakela. Meaning, Akadosh Baruch Hu, Bereshit Barai, Lokim et Hashemayim et Aretz. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world. Bereshit, the Ramban says, Bechokhmah. In the beginning, meaning, it also means with wisdom. With wisdom meaning that everything has a whole world around it. The flower that you see that seems simple to you or beautiful to you, there's a whole ecosystem around that flower that allows it to live, that allows it to have certain colors, certain smells, uh, certain uh, creatures that eat off of it, feed it, and so on and so forth. The uh, the, the bugs that you see, they, leave, they live in certain climates for a reason, because there are other bugs that need it, there are other bugs that, uh, that uh, uh, it eats, meaning there's a whole world around each and every single creature. Every tree is at a certain place because there are certain use for that tree to be at certain places. Every animal is at a certain place for a certain reason because there's a certain need for that creature. It cannot live in other places. So everything has a world around it. Every uh, 
blade of grass has an angel that stands among it and says, grow. So there's a huge amount of creation beyond our comprehension. So much so that we don't even understand our own makeup of a single human being. The amount of technology that's inside a human body is incomprehensible to any person or even all of the people put together in the world. There are entire factories that create cells in your body that literally operate like a factory, but better than any other factory you could see in the world. With lines, with certain production, with certain instructions, certain supervisors, certain uh, uh, human resources departments that terminate and hire new people. It's unbelievable. The, if The more you study the cells in your body, the more you realize how stupid we are forever thinking for a second that Hashem does not pay attention to anything. There is literally so much information in a single cell in, oh, in any one of the people in the world that you could, if you, it was written in a book, it would go from here and to outer space back and forth endless times. And that's just one cell. And then there is an entire factory system that produces cells. And they have to fit a certain way. They have to look a certain way. And this is just the cells in your body. And then you have the ecosystem in your uh, the, the the bugs, the the flies, the different flies, the different uh, you know uh, worms. Every one of them has a certain thing. There's an enormous amount of genius there. Needless to say, there's an even bigger ecosystem that's beyond this world. Why? Because this world is material and limited. Yet there's something that's unlimited, or at least incomprehensible, to the point of seeming unlimited in this world, in the physical world. Needless to say, in the unlimited world, the spiritual world, the world that's beyond this world, there are even more. So, for there to be ten types of kafakela. Ten types of punishment divisions, or seven different types of chambers in Genome, which each and every single one of those chambers has certain departments, it is not showing Shalom viciousness or, or, or cruelty, but rather the wisdom and the precision of the judgment of the Creator. Because just like he has an endless amount of ways to give the creation good in both the physical and the spiritual world with many, many different ecosystems, many, many different types of chambers and places and ways and, 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 uh, and uh, joys and so on. Needless to say, that uh, uh, infinite way to give us good has a reciprocal of bad an unlimited bad but that's also comprised of endless wisdom why? because he that created the perfect soul knows all of the specific thing that that perfect soul needs 
in order to return to its perfection or in order for it to be destroyed and return the original source to the source so Chachamim explained that there are ten different types of Genom ten, ten different types of Kafakela the Avot the Rabbi Natan In uh, chapter 12, Bereita number 4, says the following. And not only is the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu hidden under the throne of glory, but the souls of all of the tzaddikim are likewise hidden under the throne of glory. As is stated in the same source, Samuel 1, chapter 25, verse 29, that Abigail says to David, when she saw David, she fell at his feet and said, May my Lord's soul be bound in the bond of life with Hashem your God. So this is this same verse by Avigail. Talks about on one end, the endless reward that are for the, meant for the righteous, that are under the throne of glory of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But at the same token... The very same verse is used, second half of it, to talk about part of the punishment. So the Avot Rabinatan says, Now, one might think that based on what you're saying, that even the souls of the wicked are under the throne of glory. But we know that scripture teaches us otherwise. By saying, and the continuation of that verse, and may he hurl away the soul of your enemies as one shoots a stone from a slingshot. Kafakela. The English translation changes a little bit here and there, but nonetheless, it's all kafakela. Some people translate it as a uh, slingshot, some translate it as something slightly different, but nonetheless, it's all kafakela. So he says that you can't just read that verse and just look at the benefit part, the good part that all souls go under the uh, throne of glory, you have to read the rest of the verse, which, uh, which, uh, which is that the souls of your enemies, the wicked people, are going to be shot uh, uh, like a stone from a slingshot. And this is an analogy that is for the, uh, to explain to the wicked people that to what the uh, matter of the wicked people, wicked person's fate after death can be compared to, to someone who takes a stone and places it in the pocket of a slingshot, and even though 
he throws it from one place to another, he still does not know on what it will come to rest. The same is true regarding the souls of the wicked. Namely that they are confined and continuously wander about the world, searching from place for a place to rest, but do not know where they will ultimately rest. So here we see that one type of kafakela is the fact that they are flung constantly and they do not have any rest whatsoever until the sentence ends, when it ends, if it ends. Now, the Gemara in Masechet uh, Brachot, page 8a, says that uh, before this whole section happens, if another thing that a wicked person uh, feels even before they even get to Kafakela is simply the way they die. Because the uh, the the more connected they are to the to the material world, the more difficult their death is. Meaning that the uh, the actual neshama coming out of the body is more painful. To the extent where the people that become enmeshed in the physicality of this world, it becomes difficult for them to part from it. Where those that become totally attached to physicality, death is very painful experience. But someone like Moshe Rabbeinu, whose soul remained completely pure, there was little resistance or pain when the soul was kissed and restored to its heavenly place. Now, when it comes to the wicked as far as the suffering, although the soul will undergo its deserved suffering, it will eventually come to rest. Meaning that the Binyan uh, Yoshua says that, yeah, there's a lot of suffering kafakela. But the sentence that does end. It's not like Gehenom that has a uh, permanent uh, one particular chamber that it says that whoever comes in, it doesn't come out. It says the Kafakela does end at some point, but the sentences are extremely long. Like there is a uh, uh, one uh, particular story that uh, literally the, the, the person that Rabbi Udaftaya spoke about was uh, there for many, many uh, decades. And when he was asked, when Abiyu Daftaya asked him, well, how long are you going to be there? He says, I don't know. They won't tell me. Why won't tell me? He says, because so long as my sin still exists in the world, simply there is no sentence. There's no end to the sentence. Which means that the world has to literally end in some cases. For that sin to end. Now, as far as the uh, the Maral explains that that why is kafakela and not just everybody go to Gainom? It says because kafakela is measure for measure. It's one of the ways of measure for measure. How so? The Maral says in uh, in Chidusha Agadot to Masechet Shabbat, page one fifty two b. Same section we get the original source. He interprets this teaching 
in a uh, in a certain way, where he says to live a righteous life is to live a life carefully balanced between extremes of behavior. The wicked people, on the other hand, live life that incline dangerously towards one extreme or the other, lacking the discipline to achieve balance. And such lives are characterized by instability and violent shifts from one pole to another. Thus, it's fitting that the same applies after their death. Or even in the grave, they'll be unable to find stability or lasting repose. So in essence, because is uh, the, the, the people that are wicked don't follow Torah, what's the main thing that they want? No one to tell them what to do. No control. I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever I want. I can eat whatever I want. I can go wherever, you know, do whatever I want. All the different, they want no control. Which leads their lives to be like the uh, Hollywood celebrities that have high highs and low lows. And very major extremes. And that's, in essence today, that's the average. And that's how they're educating children in schools today. Where already in, in, in junior high school, there are books in libraries of the public school that talk about pedophilia. With graphic details of men with children. That is in public school libraries. In Virginia, there was a bunch of parents that are screaming bloody murder about a, uh, about the the the, uh, the the books that are in the the library of the school. And instead of the board of the school saying we're sorry, we'll take the books out, they yelled at the parents, "Why are you saying such details? This is uh, there's there's kids in the audience. Like, are you stupid? These books." are in your schools. You're telling us not to read them out loud to you? Well, we're exposing the books that are literally sound 100% like a pornography film. And these books are in public schools. What was the excuse? No, they're for high school. Oh, it's okay for a high school kid to learn about a man with a young boy? Giving graphic details. So, what is? How does this all come about? People do not want control. They want free information, free sexuality, free immorality, free, 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 free to be animals. Sodom and Gomorrah. Hence, the reason why Genom continues to get bigger and Kafakela is a perfect measure for measure for certain types of people. Because that's the life they led. They did not want freedom, and therefore they have a uh, a very volatile life, very high highs, very low lows, and that's the same thing as kafakela, where the slingshot goes to extremes. The uh, the marsha actually gives a uh, another chidush where he says this kafakela is also used in Torah Gilgulim, reincarnation. When a Neshama reincarnates, it has to go through Karfakela. Another one of the types of... Uh, the Masha says that the teaching is uh, referring to Gilgul Neshamot, which means that the wicked person's soul does not rest after his death, but is placed in the body of a new person, who hopefully follow the proper path, Meaning you're getting reincarnated, not because you're such a tzaddik. If not, this process could be repeated over and over with the unfortunate soul being hurled 
from person to person and from lifetime to lifetime, not knowing where it will finally rest. So here we see another source from the last, I think this was uh, written, maybe uh, published, probably about six, seven hundred years ago, maybe less. Uh, but these are Bretot from 2,000 years ago. You see that the whole issue of Kafakela is very much standard Judaism. It's not anything that uh, was invented in, uh, by a recent Mikubalim or anything like that. Now, the, the Gemara says that the, the Shaim are perpetually confined to this uh, slingshot. And the Midrash, Midrash Tanaim, on the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 3, says that... Uh, This, uh, this is actually based on a verse in, uh, in Exodus, verse 14, uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 27. It says that this uh, whole kafakela causes a type of sorrow where it's a, uh, the soul, while it's traveling from place to place, it's getting crushed. And where did they get it from? It says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Moser et Neshamot HaRashaim LaMalachim, Vemetzarim Umeshadkim Otam. Meshankim, Rashi says, if you look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 27, means crush him. Which means that the soul is not just flying through the air like some type of roller coaster, but rather it's crushed each time. It crash lands, crash in, in, throughout the whole process. Meaning that there is literally no end to the suffering of the soul throughout this process. Now the Zohar in uh, Parashat Balak which is uh, page 185b at the end of the page, talks about the second type of kafakela. So far we talked about really just one of them. Second type of kafakela is that there's a heavenly bedin where the wicked are slung by the angel to the lower world of Genom. To receive the punishment in Genom after Kafakela. Meaning that a person goes to the first Kafakela that we talked about. After they finish the sentence, they go back to the heavenly Bedin. The heavenly Bedin looks at the judgment. Okay, you served, let's say, 50 years. One for each time you cheated on your wife. Now, you have other sins. You violated this, you violated that, you violated that. That's not kafakela, that's genom. Okay, so how do we send them to genom? It's a process. What's the process? Kafakela. Special angels slingshot this person from the heavenly bedin to genom. Meaning a 
painful process of transfer. It's not like they go through an escalator. Where are you going, sir? Oh, I'm going to Ganom, chamber three. No, it's the whole process is a painful process. And that process of going from the heavenly bedin to a bad place is itself another form of kafakela. Kafakela number three. In the book Ruchot Mesaprot by Rabbi Yudaftaya in page six, there's a translation of the book, or at least part of it, in English. It's called Minchat Yehuda. Very, very scary book by Rabbi Yudaftaya, one of the greatest Mekubalim in the last 150 years. The things that he did during his life, something uh, out of this world. He, on a regular basis, talked to the other side of the world. The supernatural. Helping some of them, most of them, but uh, dealing with a lot of things and knowing a lot of things that literally you wouldn't even want to know in a nightmare. And... Uh, Part of the book was uh, translated to English, and it's called Minchat Yehuda. And in Hebrew, it's called Uchot Mesaprot. Uchot Mesaprot means spirits speak. Who do they speak to? Rabbi Yudaftaya. Different spirits that are inside people, called Dibukim. What's a Dibuk? A Dibuk is when some spirit, some soul, is... Uh, in Kafakela and succeeds in getting away from the Malachi Chabalah that are destroying it constantly and are looking for a place to stop getting a beating because so long as they're traveling they're getting a beating from these angels so they constantly look to go somewhere many times they go into rocks and walls and uh, different things because so long as they're inside the rock or inside a plant or inside something they don't get the, 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 the same beating. That's why in a Torah there's a place where it says that there's rocks uh, moving. Or rocks scream, sorry, rocks screaming. What, you ever hear a rock scream? Rock screams is sometimes there's a neshama inside the rock. Either reincarnated as that or someone from Kafakela hiding inside the rock. From the ministering angels. Now, And if as soon as he gets out, they're going to beat him up again. So they rather stay there, but they can't fix their tikkun because so long as they're inside the rock, it's not they're not fulfilling their sentence. So which one is worse? Point being is is that it's a nightmare of all nightmares, and the uh, at times these uh, these ruchot get the permission to go into people. But they don't go into just anybody. They go into people that deserve it. There is a uh, famous story where uh, I believe it was Rabbi Yudaftaya that actually helped this uh, family where a uh, certain uh, woman married a guy and uh, he was an avrech. And uh, it was promised to him that uh, they'll take care of the... her father will take care of the business and he'll learn. And he learned, learned, learned. And after a few years, the wife got the Yetzirah and she said, why don't you uh, 
help out my father in the business, he's getting older, at least for part of the day, do the accounting. And the husband is a tzaddik, he agreed, but didn't realize that this was a mistake. And before you know it, within a couple of years, he stopped learning Torah altogether. Stopped learning Torah altogether. As soon as he stopped learning Torah altogether, one day, the wife goes crazy. Wife suddenly goes crazy, starts saying all types of strange things, acting in a strange way. And the Chachamim knew that there's something wrong here. It's not normal. And they asked the family, when did this happen? And they said, oh, when she went to the well to get water for the family, suddenly something happened and uh, she went crazy. So they brought the uh, Mekubah, I believe it was Abiyu Daftaya, but it may be a different Mekubah. Uh... And Rabbi Yudhutayah, who knew how to speak to these uh, Neshamot, because even the Arizal says that uh, crazy people in general are people that have uh, two souls in them. It's not, uh, it's not like, a, uh, like people think. They have multiple souls that are fighting and so on. It's a big uh, story. Uh, so now, he speaks to this woman and he says... Who gave you, who, who are you? It says it's uh, some uh, woman that was an orphan that uh, made some sins in her life, but that's because she didn't get the right education, but uh, she's serving her sentence in uh, Kafakela. He says, who gave you the right to go into this righteous woman? She's religious, she's a good woman. He says, who gave you the right? He starts laughing. He says, why are you laughing? You're not ashamed of yourself? She goes, no. It's that I got begged to go into her. He said, who begged you to go into her? He says, her grandfather and her husband's grandfather. Both came to me and begged me to enter her. He says, why? He says, to convince her to tell her husband to go back to learning to law full time. And because she's the reason why he stopped learning full time, I got the permission to go into her. So here we see that the the soul sometimes go into people. It's not so common today, but it does exist. It's not so common today, not because it doesn't happen, but because it's not necessarily exposed as much as it used to be. Plus there's not uh, the same type of mikubalim that we used to have in the past to know how to deal with it. It's usually people that have strange situations like this, are usually just put into a mental institution and just left there for the rest of their life. So now in Ruchot Mesaprot, Rabbi Yudaftaya says, uh, talks about the third type of Kafakela. And he says that after Chibuta Kevel, after the beatings of the grave, the Neshama goes to Kafakela. For what? To be slung into the Bedin and then to gain them. Meaning that it's not just a terminal to fling a person from the Bedin to gain them, but it's also a flinging from the grave to the Bedin of Shemaim. That's another type of Kafakela. Number four, 
ספר חרדים by רבי אליעזר אזכרי, which is about 500 years ago. He comments on the same Rabbi, uh, Avot Rabbi Natan that we just read before. He says that the wicked Neshamot get thrown out of Eretz Yisrael into the exile. Why? Because the land of Israel is holy itself. So all of the wicked people, Bechale Shabbat, Reshaim, that get buried in Israel, all of their neshamot get flung out of Israel. And therefore, burying, he says that uh, uh, burying the wicked people in Eretz Yisrael is a mistake. Like if somebody dies in, uh, in the U.S., and they go and they want to bury him in Israel. If he's a wicked, wicked person, it's a complete waste of time. Why? Rabbi Ephraim calls it Baltashrit, waste of money. Why waste of money? Because even though you're burying his body in Eretz Israel, his neshama gets flung out of Eretz Israel because he's a rasha anyway. That's the fourth type of kafakila. Number five, Sefer Sharet Tshuva. Sefer Sharet Tshuva, there are translations to it in English from multiple publishers. I have a, uh, this one, the Mermelstein edition uh, by Feldheim. There's one, I believe, by uh, Art Scroll. Sharet Tshuva in uh, gate number two. Gate number two, section 18. Talks about Kafakela. Veda ki nefesh arasha asher kol ta'ava lechefce aguf bechayav Know that the soul of the wicked, a soul whose desire is only for the cravings of the body during its lifetime, venifredet ta'ava me'avudat aborev venivdelet misharashia That a desired divorce from a divine service and thus the soul separated from its roots that when he dies this wicked person since he chased all of his cravings when he dies he transcends to the earth to the place of its desire taking on the quality of dust which descends and does not rise Meaning that his type of kafakela is a never-ending crash. Nonetheless, אבל יעלו על המרום לדין ולמשפט ולראות איך החליף המרום בשאול כאשר יעלו את האבן על ידי kafakela. Now even though it doesn't have any power of itself, to lift itself out of this in, uh, unending decline. Nonetheless, it is brought to the heavenly court. It's risen up there. More like it's flung up there. To be tried and judged. And that, it may view how it exchanged heaven for Genom. 
Meaning that this whole process, once they get up there, it shows that, look, what you did, and this is what you got, what you could have done, and what you could have had. And this is done how? How do they fling it? It's since this this is like a stone that constantly falls and has no power of itself because it has no kedusha, so it falls, falls, falls. Imagine like literally a nightmare of all nightmares. Like these, you know, some people have like the like these like roller coasters where they drop a lot, but they only like it because eventually it stops dropping. So this thing just keeps dropping endlessly, but eventually it's flung all the way back up there. How? It's flung. Uh, the way a stone ascends when thrown from a slingshot. Meaning that a Rabbein Yonah gives us another type of kafakila. After the soul ascends to heaven, it will naturally fall back to earth. Just like the stone plummets back to earth, when it's thrust, it's spent. Meaning eventually it gets up there, it gets the shows its whole life, and uh, it can't doesn't have the strength to stay in that heavenly bedin for long because it doesn't have power of itself so therefore what happens it goes all the way drops all the way back down and crash lands the whole way plummets back the whole way and the source is the same source the Sefer Shmuel chapter 25 verse 29 Pasuk says in Mishle, in a uh, which is what the Rabbi Yehuda brings here in the Book of Proverbs, uh, chapter eleven, verse seven, that Bemot Adam Rasha Tovat Tikva, Kilot Yeh Tikva La Nefesh Rasha La Tzet Nachoshech Leol Shneimar Al Nefesh Rasha Tavo Ador Ador Avotav Ad Netzach Lo Yiruol. So he says another uh, source in essence for all of this is coming from Shlomo HaMelech where he says when the evil person dies hope is lost for there is no hope that the soul of the wicked will emerge from the darkness to light which darkness? talking about this Kafakela as it says concerning the wicked man's soul in uh, Psalms 49.20 go to the generation of his ancestors they will see no light for eternity so David Melech talks about eternal punishment in Teilim, and uh, that's where uh, Shlomo Melech, his son, gets his a uh, teaching about this uh, place of uh, eternal darkness. And Rabbeinu now uses both of them as a place to learn about Kafakela and eternal punishment. Rabbeinu Yonah is one of the Rishonim from about 800 years ago. It's one of the family members of the Ramban. So now we see that Rabbi Yonah just gave us the fifth type of kafakela that uh, tried and judged and uh, and shown what uh, it exchanged 
for uh, how it exchanged heaven for Genom, for Sheol, and then it crash lands after the judgment. The sixth type of Kafakela is brought in Sefer Menorat Amao in Perek Gimel, page 58. Where he says that Kafakela is connected to Gilgulim, reincarnation. And he quotes the Midrash in uh, Vaikra Rabbah. says that the Ruach will return to Hashem, its creator, and in the name of Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman, who himself said it in the name of Rabbi Avi Dimi from Haifa, they bring a parable of the uh, of a scholar called Kohen uh, Chaver. Kohen, Kohen, that was a Chaver, that was a scholar that uh, threw a loaf of bread to a Kohen who was an Amaretz, who was an ignoramus. And he says to him, See that I am pure, my home is pure, and the bread that I give you is pure. If you give me as I give you, then good. But if you don't, then I'll throw it in your face. And the Chachamim say, this is a parable. What's the parable? This is what Hashem says to a man. I am pure, Hashem says. My place is pure. My servants are pure. And the neshama that I gave you is pure. If you give it back to me as I give it to you, then good. But if not, I will throw it in your face. As it is written in the Midrash of Mishlei, the soul of the tzaddikim and the soul of the reshaim rise up to the heavenly court and the soul of the wicked the reshaim return and crash down as it's stated in the book of Samuel chapter 25, 29 so here the Chachamim uh, give us a sixth type of genom sixth, sixth type of uh, Kafakela, that they learn from, uh, there's a form of uh, judgment for a person that gets something and in essence returns Hashem what he gave him as a uh, impure and uh, he, the process of punishment in essence, not even the punishment itself is a Kafakela and the Marsha who comments on this says that the Kafakela uh, section of, of the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat is one of the uh, places where you will find many of the secrets of the Torah of reincarnation. The secrets of reincarnation in there. Gilgulim, Torah Gilgulim. Now, the next proof is perhaps one of the most interesting. Not necessarily because of the information itself alone, but rather because of the source. 
Because the source, unlike the ones that I gave you so far, does not come from a midrash or personal stories, and uh, but rather it comes from a responsa. Responsa meaning it's a alachic sefil, laws, and answering to complications. The response. Response of the Radbaz in Yore Dea 887. It's uh, Rabbi David ibn uh, Shlomo ben Zimra. He was one of the Gdolei Ador that lived in Tzfat right before the time of the Shukhan Aruch. So we're talking about over 600 years ago. Question. Question is. On a midrash in uh, Vaikra Rabbah that says that the soul of the righteous and the uh, and the wicked rise to be judged in the heavenly bedin and both get thrown back down to the world, and therefore it's opposite the tradition that says on the soul of the tzaddikim are hidden under the heavenly throne. Which it says in Masechet Shabbat. So how come? It's a question on the Midrash. It's a question, what's, uh, how come it says that both the Tzadikim and the Reshaim get flung to the heavenly Bedin? But the tradition that we have is that really the Tzadikim are placed under the throne of glory of Hashem. Why is it that way? So... The Radbaz says, know that there are tzaddikim that deserve it. Because of evil acts. What kind of evil acts? The tzaddikim. What evil acts can a tzaddik do? He's a tzaddik. You can't say, oh, tzaddik, he murdered people. He's a tzaddik. Tzaddik, he said uh, He's a tzaddik. He can't say stuff like that. He violate Shabbat. He's a tzaddik. What evil acts? This is the Radbaz. What evil acts? Dying without sons. People today, they get married. Rabbi, I'm not ready to have kids. Can we wait like five, ten years? Babutai. I'm not going to go too deep into it. I'm just going to tell you simple. If you're married and you're not trying to have kids, you're simply mikre avud. You're a lost cause. You're married you don't, and you're not trying to bring kids to the world. You're simply a lost cause. Why? You're going to get punished severely. Now if you're trying, and the Kodesh Mechul doesn't give you the blessings, it's a different story. But if you're not even trying, oh, we're not ready, oh, we don't have the money, what? Disaster. Meaning that people think, oh no, as long as you keep Shabbat, as long as you keep kosher, as long as you keep, 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 everything's okay. (laughs) It's not so simple. There's departments. There's departments. Departments for different people, different things, even the tzaddikim. Wait, they said the kid didn't want to bring kids to the world. They wanted. Whatever reason, they didn't get the boy. 
Meaning, there was a judgment of why they didn't get it, and in essence, they're getting punished for it. Now, of course, they're not getting punished the same way that Rashai is getting punished for an endless amount of time, but nonetheless, the, the Radbaz says, yes, there's even Tzadikim in Kafakela sometimes, for a certain amount of time. Why? In that place. There's some Tzadikim that died recently, in the last 30, 40 years. No kids at all. According to the Radbaz, they went to Kafakela. They went to Kafakela. Or any sin that requires reincarnation. And therefore, those souls look like the wicked ones in this aspect. And therefore, they get thrown for a Gilgul, uh, as a stone, for Lashonara, for regretting a mitzvah, and the like, to a low world. Based on the same source in Samuel 25-29. And what Rabbi Eliezer says regarding the tzaddikim that are under the throne of glory is referring to complete tzaddikim who were promised no gilgul but there are tzaddikim with sins that require kafakela meaning they require a crash person says they don't do tshuva for it they go to kafakela person I uh does a certain type of sin that requires reincarnation. What does a sin require reincarnation? He did unethical business. Where you have a uh, product, you sold the guy a uh, product, it's brand new. In reality, it's not brand new. It's used. It's refurbished. Sold him a thousand dollar piece of equipment. In reality, store 300 bucks. Cheated, you lied. You have a couple of options. One, return the money. Now you don't know where he is. You have no idea who he is, where he is. Option number one, return to him. You don't know where he is. Option number two, give all that extra money that you made, that extra $700, give it to a public cause public cause, whether it's feeding the homeless, uh, the, the, the poor, Tamide Chachamim, Torah, Kiru, things that benefit the public. Option number three, Kafakela. That's going to bring you to a reincarnation. Why? Because to get to the reincarnation after the Chibut HaKever, Bedin. Oh! You have 700, you lived 70 years, 80 years, 100 years, did great. But remember when you were 35 years old, you did that one transaction, and you, it wasn't really kosher, remember? And you didn't do, you didn't do chua for it. Yes, you have to go back and get a whole new life to go pay back that guy. Wait, but he died also. Yeah, no, we're going to bring him back too. So you go back to work for him as a dog, as a cat, as a person, as a something. 
until you pay him back the seven hundred dollars. Yeah, but uh, Hashem, the value of money has gone down precipitously. Back then, seven hundred dollars worth seven hundred dollars. Now that seven hundred dollars is like seven million. I'll have to work for fifty years. Perfect. Next time you won't do it. Nightmare. But that's the reality. Baal Shem Tov says a story, Mamash, 100%. He himself saw there's a neshama inside a horse of one of his students. Why? He owed his friend a hundred liras or whatever it was, like a minimal amount of money, like a hundred dollars. He had to reincarnate as a horse to work for his friend until he either forgave him or until the horse earned a hundred liras, which would be literally years. The, the minimum wage for horses is not that much. So that's the thing. People don't understand. Oh, reincarnation. Yeah, you must be really, really bad person. No, it just unethical business. You stole money, you're coming back. Stole money from people, dishonest business, you're, not, you're coming back. That's it. Forget it. Like it's, Unless you do tshuva, you're coming back. Yeah, but if I do tshuva, I have to give up all my money. Forgive up all your money. Better to give up all your money than to, uh, to come back to this world. But that's the thing. People that are so connected to this world, there's no way they're, they're going to allow themselves to, to, to get rid of that. They, f- they feel like they're going to die with the money. And that's the thing. And this is Rabotai in a responsa. It's a shelot v'tshuvot. It's not even a midrash. Meaning this is like standard Judaism. It's not a... It's not uh, some, oh, this is mystical. This is responsa. Continues. This is, and this was the seventh type of kafakela. Number eight. Yalkut chadash. Perek chataim ve'onashim. Upgimatam ve'reshaim. By Rabbi Israel Mibels, lived about 360 years ago. Section of the book Ot Yutet, section 19. So Rabbi Israel Mibels says the following: The sin of Lashon Hara, its punishment is to become a stone. Punishment for Lashon Rabotai is to become a stone. And the same for those who made a mitzvah and regretted it. Same thing as what the uh, response said, the Radbaz says. Lashon Hara, a mitzvah, in regretting a mitzvah, becoming a stone. You did a mitzvah, you donated some money, you learned some Torah, but because you learned some Torah, you missed the appointment. Or you lost some type of deal. Ah, I shouldn't have learned. I shouldn't have gotten that shiur. For that stupid statement, you have to come back as a stone. Or you have to do tshuva. I'm sorry, Kadosh Baruch I know that your Torah is worth more than all the gold in the world, all the money in the world, and everything is from you. I'm sorry. That's the whole point of having uh, you know, a uh, Yom Kippur. We're supposed to prepare, cry to Kadosh Now, if we haven't done anything, if, if there's certain things we're just realizing during the shiur, 
that we haven't done tshuva for, we still have to do it. This right now is the time. Right now, right now, you're thinking about it. Okay, uh, I didn't even know. This mamash. This is last last couple of hours left. Couple of hours left. We're finished. Person, at the end, I'll tell you guys certain things to start applying. So, Rabbi Yisrael Mibel says that Lashonara and regretting a mitzvah, a person has to come back as a stone. And there is no lower level than this punishment of the Gilgul into a stone, and this is done inside Genom, where they do this Kafakela. As it is written in Psalm 84, 7. Those who pass through the valley of the Bacha. Bacha is, uh, is, is thorns. So Bacha says it's a uh, acronym for Bimtsolot Kmo'avin. That uh, in the depths of like a rock. It's an uh, acronym. As in Exodus chapter 15 verse 5. Regarding the Egyptians. And this soul doesn't have a uh, rectification. Until this rock crumbles from their tears into the river. As it is written in Psalm 84.7. That they transformed into a wellspring. That the rock cries about itself until the tears from the uh, crying about itself crumbles the rock. And each take as long as needed depending on the size of the rock. So, in so many words, the nightmare that Rabbi Israel Mibel says, the worst possible thing that a person could happen to a person, they say Lashonara, they regret a mitzvah, they have to come back as a stone. Okay, well how does a stone do tshuva? Simple. It cries about itself non-stop. Until the tears themselves destroy the rock. A lot of water eventually crumble the rock and eventually destroys the whole rock. Yeah, but what if it's a boulder? So it's going to take a lot longer. And a lot more tears. What if it's a tiny little rock? Okay, it'll take a little less, but still a lot of tears. The bigger the sin, the bigger the rock, the more tears. That's what he calls the, the worst thing. Now, if that wasn't enough, comes Rabbi Yosef Karo. Baal Also talks about this. The Magid Mesharim. Rabbi Yosef Karo and Magid Mesharim. Parashat Beshalach. So he says, uh, 
So the, the Megid Mesharim in Parashat uh, B'Shalach, the eve of the 15th of Shvat, he talks about the devotion. Devotion to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Where the Megid Mesharim is the, in essence, the personal journal of Rabbi Yosef Karol. And his conversations with his Chavuta. Who was Chavuta? An angel. Angel called the Magid. Now this, uh, the angel constantly rebukes him about certain things and gives him admirations and other things. And here he tells him certain secrets. And he says the following. This is the secret of what was said by Avigail. Again, it brings the same exact source that we talked about several times. May the Lord's soul be bound up in the bond of life with the Lord your God, and may He shoot away the soul of your enemies as one shoots a stone within a slingshot. This, says the, uh, the, the angel, this signifies that in any case, the soul of my Lord will be bound up in the bond of life, which is the attachment of, to the acquirer. This is an ipso facto because while you are still in this world, you always devote yourself to the Lord your God. And there's no moment in this world that you do not devote yourself, your thoughts to His Torah, to serve Him, to fear Him. This is what's meant, et Hashem elokecha tirah, with your Lord uh, your God. Now, if so, it's even more necessary that you separate yourself from this material and that your living that your living soul unite with your acquirer. For since your meditations and thoughts are always only of Hashem, of necessity, that is where you would always think of attaching yourself. But the living soul of your enemies as their thoughts are not united with the blessed name, and instead they may meditate on their pleasures. Let them be like a stone in a slingshot, which means that those who think of food and drink will attach themselves to the external forces, to the klipot, appointed over food and drink. Those who contemplate adultery will attach themselves to the forces appointed over adultery. Those who contemplate rulership and honor will attach themselves to the forces appointed over them. It is as if they place their souls in the hollow of the sling. For since the external forces rule over such a person, it's as if he is stuck in the hollow of a sling. Also, because they come to rule over him by means of his thoughts concerning that kind of pleasure, and others come to rule over him by means of another kind of pleasure. So it seems that he is stuck between them. For naturally his soul attaches itself to the sight of his thoughts and his meditations. In so many words, the kafakela that a person has is designed by his, by his own uh, desires. Because he, let's say, he makes certain sins with his uh, food or with immorality and so on. He gets attached to that type of klipa. Now, once he makes the, uh, the sins, there's a certain sentence 
Now, but because he doesn't only make the sin of, let's say, adultery. He also makes sins with food. He also makes food with uh, Lashonara. He makes, so his kafakila is, is constantly uh, in, in different positions. He gets flung from different places because of different desires. So just like he couldn't make up which desire to follow at any given moment, his, the neshama of this person is flung in the same respect. From one desire to the other, from one nightmare to another. So each desire creates a different klipa, and therefore the klipa, the, the kafakela is based on the klipa of the desires. And just like he or she went from one desire to another desire, they're now slung from one end to another. The Another sefer by the Baal Ksot HaKoshen, Rabbi Arya Leib, about 250 years ago, a sefer called Shav Shmateta. Sefer Shashmateta, it's a very deep sefer by one of the Gdoleador who learned Torah through extraordinary poverty to address the issues of Safek, which is doubts, and Sfek Sfeka, which is an Allahic term when there is a double doubt. And he quotes the Magid Mesharim, he quotes what we just quoted, the Rabbi Yosef Karawan, and he adds more to this particular writing of the Magid Masharim. And he says the following. Again, this is an Allahic Sefer. It's not a Midrash. It's not a uh, stories. It's a Allahic Sefer that talks about Kafakela, which has uh, a lot higher significance to the naysayer world that always try to uh, you know, uh, uh, minimize the significance of a midrash because oh, it's a midrash, so you're not obligated to follow it, as if a midrash is some fairy tale or something. So, when the average ignoramus hears such a thing, they get affected. It's like Amalek. But when you hear, listen, Rav Ovadia, Stipe Lagaon, Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Akiva, Vilna Gaon. They said this, they in this, they discussed this, it's n- it doesn't have the same value in the mind of a naysayer. In reality, both should be the same. But in the world today of, of ignorance and of, of, of heresy and so on, you have to mention these specific points because it carries a certain value. So here you have a Gdolado discussing deep issues of Allah, yet taking the time to specify this particular important subject of Kafakela and elaborating on a point that's in one of the most uh, uh, extraordinary books of the last 500 years, which is Magid Mesharim. Magid Mesharim, by the way, also was uh, translated to English. Uh, some parts of it were not, but most of it was. Uh, some parts that are just blank. 
but it's a uh, very good translation from what I've uh, checked so far. It's a very good translation. It's a uh, written by uh, Rabbi Echiel Barlev and translated by uh, K. Skeist. Anyway, it's printed in, Isra- in, in Eretz Yisrael and uh, you can buy it online. But uh, it's called the Magid uh, Mesharim, the Magid of the Righteousness. So anyway, this book of the conversation between Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Baal Shulchan Aruch, and the angel, initially people like, what, spoke to an angel? Like really? This is, this is, maybe it's a made up. All of Dulea Adol discussed it. 100% this came, this is 100% authentic. It's accepted among Dulea Israel, this is 100% authentic. So it's not like, oh, some accept it, some don't. This is it. This is it. So now, here we see one of the Gdolado that accepted this Magid Mesharim as fact and quotes it in his Allahic work. Shab Shmateta saying the following Each desire gives different strength and direction in Kafakela. Where initially it says that the Kafakela is designed based on the desire. His desire, he makes sins with food, that he's attached to the klipa of food, okay, that's one department. But then he has also the klipa of adultery. Then he has the klipa of uh, some other form of immorality or, or lashonara and so on. So now he has several departments. So the kafakela that he just designed for, for himself through his own sins flings him from one department to the other. Just like he chased different desires, it's constantly. So now the Ksotah uh, Choshen uh, says, okay, but how fast does he go? From one place to another. How fast does he go? What's the speed that he goes? That's how they go. That's how that's how precise they are. How fast does he go? It's based on the uh, the level of desire. The strength of the desire determines the strength of the, uh, the, the how, uh, what direction that he goes in the kafakela. Where did we get this from? Bamidbar, uh, the Book of Numbers, chapter eleven, verse thirty-four. Kisham mitavim that uh, because. There, they buried the people who were craving. He says here, this verse, in the five books of Moses, the Midrash asks, why give the place a name? If they desire for meat was once, and yet the name is forever. There's a place in a, uh, in a, uh, in a Torah, it's mentioned, this is, they bury these people in a place called craving. But what craving? These are the people that crave the, uh, the, the meat. They complain to Hashem, they want the meat. So Hashem killed some of them. The meat came out of their nose and so on. They died from it. The Chachamim say, okay, fine. They crave the meat, but that was a one-time thing. Why do you have to name the place forever based on their one-time craving? Why do you have to name something based on a one-time thing? The Midrash answers 
because this is the place where they are still desiring even after they died. Because all that a person desires in his life stays with him even after separating from his body. And one of the things Rabbi Ephraim brings as an example of uh, Dibukim. Rabbi Odaftaya was trying to fix one of these Dibukim. And the Dibuk, this is actually in a Minchat uh, Yudah, nightmare story of what the guy goes through and uh, what the Dibuk gets punished while he's uh, talking to him. He's crushing his member. It's a nightmare story. I just, I'm remembering it right now and I want to like... Ugh. Anyway, this Dibuk, what sins did he make while he was alive? Immorality. Where did he enter? He entered his sister. What was he doing to his sister? Raping her as a Dibuk. So his sister was constantly feeling that somebody's raping her. Who's raping her? A brother that died. Now while Rabbi Udaftaya is trying to save this guy, get him out and whatever, he continues to make the sins. He says, why are you doing it? He says, I can't help myself. I was attached to it while I was alive. I can't stop myself while I'm dead. Like, imagine the nightmare of all, all people involved. That's Kabutai Omekadin in a small perspective of it. The depth of judgment in a small perspective of it. Rabbi Udaftai was trying to fix him and the guy continued to sinning and ruining any rectification that Rabbi Udaftai did. Meaning Rabbi Udaftai is saying all types of holy names in order to fix this guy to get him out. After he does da-da-da-da-da, the guy makes a sin again. Ruining everything he just did for two days. He says, why did you do it? He says, I can't help myself. I died this way, I'm this way. I can't change. That's the ninth Kafakela. Number ten. Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen Miloblin. In Sefer Tzidkat HaTzadik. Ot 234 writes the people that fell into Kafakela of desires continued to live there with the same jealousy the same kavod the same imaginary desires as they did in this world whereby they have endless anxiety for things and desires of this world that they can no longer do. This is the opposite of Tzroah Chaim, the bond of life. That's written in the book of, uh, of Samuel, where it says that the uh, the uh, the righteous will get Tzroah Chaim, they'll get the bond of life. This is the exact opposite of it. Why the opposite of it? It says the whole time that they were in Chaim... They desired, desired this, desired that, desired it, and they were able to fulfill their desire. The punishment in Kafakela is to have all of the anxiety of their desires, but they can't fulfill it. Imagine a person 
is uh, can't handle themselves. Like some people are like obese, but they're not obese because they were born that way because of such a uh, a, a defect, but rather because they're addicted to food. They're addicted to food. Imagine a person you put them in a uh, glass uh, <coughs> little cage thing, and then you open the glass. And what is it? All the favorite cakes. Stay like that for a week. And the cakes stay fresh. They keep changing them. Freshening them up. And then I bring... And all they can do is, 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 uh, uh, is, is just look at them. person want to kill themselves. Kafakela is not a week. All of the anxiety and the feelings of desire they had in this world, they have after they leave this world. That's the punishment. Then there's another kafakela, or another source really, there's a lot more information, the Baal Shem Tov, Baal Shem Tov, Al Torah, Baal Shem Tov Al Torah, in uh, Parashat Shmot, in uh, Sefer Shmot, Parashat Yitro. He brings Tehilim 107, verse 4. It says, they wandered in the desert, in a desolation of uh, the path. They found no inhabited city. Tauba Midbar Bishimon, Derech Ir Moshav, but the Baal Shem Tov says they mistake they mistake all week instead of going in a good way the way of the Kedushah they go in the way of the illusion after the Klippah the absence and the Klippah And this is hinted in the word Bamidbar. Bamidbar, the Gimatria is Avraham, that stands for Chesed. And it stands against the first day of the week. And when the, uh, when the first day of the week comes, suddenly he has the strength to control, which is the Chesed of Hashem, that sustains the powers of Tumah. Which is, Kafake, which is uh, coming from Kafakela. So when Shabbat arrives, the rest comes to the rejected among Israel. These are the sparks called the rejected of Israel. Nitzchei Hashem. Nitzchei Israel. Which are sparks from the Zerah uh, Levatala, wasted seed. In so many words, the uh, the language of the of the uh, Baal Shem Tov is very deep, hard to uh, narrate, at least for me. But uh, the uh, Baal Shem Tov is talking about how 
the uh, this pasuk gives us the source that there are certain people that are uh, in kafakela, and it has to do because of their desires and the desire that leads people to kafakela that has no end until somehow it's rectified is wasting seed. That the sparks that they wasted are in essence a uh, they're wasting the kedusha that they had and there's no uh, end to the kafakela until the person does tikkun abrit. Now the Agadat Bereshit Buber in Perek 35 Ot Aleph 1 He quotes also the same verse in the uh, book of Samuel 25-29 and he asks what is the Tzro Chaim? What is the bond of life? It's a Shemit Barach where it's written in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 but Hashem, Hashem, your, uh, your God, Hashem is emit. He's true. He is the living God and the eternal king. And the soul of your enemy will be slingshot to Kafakela. Is referring to the dispersing of the soul in the four corners of the world. And again, return to the slingshot, Kafakela, and again dispersed. And these are the souls of the Rishayim. So... He is, uh, in so many words, where the uh, the uh, here it's talking about how the punishment of Kafakela is, in essence, the constant distancing from Hashem into different dire- directions, four corners of the world. Next is the Zohar, Parashat Truma, page one forty-two B. Says the following. Because there's a nefesh, meaning a soul, that doesn't get rest in heaven, but rather destroyed with the body. And this is the one that it's written about in the book of Samuel, which wanders and rolls around the world and has no rest at all, during day or night. And this punishment is worse than everything, as it will be destroyed with the body. So the Zohar Pasat talks about Kafakela and this is, in essence, uh, um, describes it as the worst possible punishment. Because it's body and soul at the same time. Now, similar to Chibut HaKever, but apparently different. The Zohar in Pasat Beshalach, page 59a, asks, who's doing the slingshot? Who's doing the slingshot? Where does it come from? So the uh, all of those actions that a person puts effort into, which are not serving Hashem, from those actions, the evil angel named Hevel is created. And when the person's soul leaves his body, the angel Hevel is the one who slingshots him. In Kafakela, like a rock, as it's written in Samuel twenty-five twenty-nine. 
So what is uh, so? Who is the uh, who's doing the slingshot? The name is Hevel, Hevel the angel, who rolls him around the world, and then all of these actions that he did that were not serving Hashem created the angel Hevel. He repeats the same thing. And this is also hinted by Shlomo Amelech in Kohelet chapter 1 verse 14. Ra'iti et kol ha-ma'asim shenasu tachat ha-shemesh v'hinei ha-kol hevel v'ra'ot ruach. That Shlomo Amelech says, I've seen all of the deeds done beneath the sun. And behold, behold, all is futile, all is hevel. And the vexation of the spirit, meaning the souls of the wicked are... Giving strength to the kafa killer, they're gonna get the, the uh, heaven. So the more energy a person exerts on making their sins, in essence, the more strength they're giving to their uh, punishment in uh, in uh, by heaven the angel. In so many words, it's it's measure from it's a form of measure for measure. Well, a person creates their own heaven or hell. Just like the Mishnah in Avot says that when a person creates a, uh, when a person does a good deed, he creates a uh, uh, a defendant. When a person uh, uh, create, uh, makes a sin, he creates a prosecutor, creates an angel. Now comes Tanya. Tanya, the uh, work of foundation of Chabad, also talks about Kafakela. He quotes and elaborates on the same Zohar that we just talked about in Parshat Beshalach, page 59a. And in Netanya Lekutea Marim in the eighth Perik, he says, as for the permissible but idle chatter, such as in, such as in the case of an ignoramus who cannot study Torah, he must go a cleansing of his soul to rid himself of the tuma of the klipa through it being rolled in kafakela. As it's stated in the Zohar in Pasuk B'Shalach. But regarding forbidden speech, Kafakel is not enough. And therefore he must descend to Gainom. So here we see that the Balatanya, foundation of, Shabbat, of, of Chabad, does not speak like modern day Chabad. We tell most Chabad today, how come you don't uh, tell people about uh, reward and punishment? No, Chabad, we're all friendly. We don't believe in uh, such speech. Wait, do you read your own books? Do, do you read at all? Chumash? Anything? Babkis. Why? This is the foundation. It's not your own woman. It has nothing to do with me. Now they're going to tell you what they tell. No, it's a language. It's the certain type of way that it talks. It's really hot. 
What are you talking about? Bringing sources here from another source, from another source. They're all connected. And now already we're talking of each one of the sources connects to the other. It's not like some random sources that I got from some uh, website. Each one of the sources, if you notice, it all connects to the other. They're all building one after another. They're all based off the same exact verse. There is no second way of understanding this. You can build on it to understand more, but it doesn't remove the shot basic meaning. When the Balatani tells you, you know, idle chatter, simply waste of conversation, is going to bring a person to Kafakela, he's not, it's not a parable. It's not like, oh, there's another meaning, you have to understand, if it's it. Which means if for an idle conversation a person is going to Kafakela. For Lashonara, Kafakela is not even enough, he says. It's Genom. What does he get for Chilul Shabbat? Because idle chatter is not good, but it's not Karet. Lashonara, it's not good, but it's not Karet. Shabbat is Karet. Nida is karet. Eating on Yom Kippur is karet. Chametz on Pesach is karet. One that does the other usually does the rest. The Baratai is not even talking about them yet. Look what punishment, what severity of punishment a person gets for something that most people don't even think is a sin bichlal. It's an entire industry built on Lashon Arad. It's called journalism. Nobody thinks it's a sin, Bichlan. Hey, did you hear what happened to her? You hear what happened to him? Practically half of the conversations in the world start that way. The average person doesn't even think it's a sin. That's the reason why the Chafetz Chaim says that Lashon Arad is the worst. Why? He says, it's worse than murder. It's not even murder, it's worse than murder. Why worse than murder? In reality, the punishment for, for murder is, is, is terrible, it's the worst. But why is Lashonara worse than murder? It's because the murder, a person kills somebody if he still has his marbles, he feels bad immediately after he murdered the guy. Ah, poor guy, he's got a family, he's got a this, he's got a that. Ah, whatever, listen, I had to do my job, I had to kill him. But he feels bad about it. The guy that says Lashonara and destroys a person's life, he doesn't even do shiva for it. Why? He doesn't think he did anything wrong. Why? What did I do? I just said he uh, is having family problems. I just said that he has a lot of money. I just said that uh, she's uh, not happy with her husband. I just said that... Uh, da, 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 da. You just said, Habibi, you just did something worse than murder. Why? It's not even the fact that you caused this, mur- this person so much damage. Is that you yourself don't even realize you did anything wrong to do tshuva for it. Meaning, person's going to die with this and has to get punished for it. Because at least the murderer, at some point, is going to say, I'm sorry to Hashem. Even if it's the last day on earth, he's going to say, listen Hashem, I probably shouldn't have killed that five, those five people. At least he'll do some type of tshuva for it. Whereas you, for the Lashon you don't even think there's anything wrong with it. Well, I'm just talking. Well, I can't talk now. That's the reality. That's the reality. There's a woman. Watch one of the shulim. 
I say to people sometimes, why can't you just be quiet? You'd get mamash, you'd, you'd, you'd get so much more out of life if you just be quiet. What does she do? It was one of the lectures, one of the videos, I talked about a modesty, I don't remember exactly the details, but whatever, modesty. She writes a comment. I've been modest for five years, but I still didn't find my shiduch. Meaning, public complaint against Hashem. And what I said in a shiur, that if you are modest, if you do certain things, you'll find your shiduch. She writes, I've been modest for five years, and I still didn't find my shiduch. First of all, why did you decide to make this a public comment? Is beyond me. You could send me privately, Rabbi, listen, I have a problem, five years, I'm lonely, I'm miserable, no problem. A lot of people are lonely and miserable and they send private comments. Why do you make it a public comment? Why? Because you're a shite. But you don't even realize it. Mamash, this is, Mamash, it shows the person's wicked, but doesn't even realize it. And it's not, I'm not talking about, they're not evil. They're wicked. It's two different things. Evil is mamash, an evil person. Causes bad. Wicked is sometimes a person could be the nicest person in the world, but still wicked. Because they don't understand that their actions have ramifications. So now she made this public comment. Usually people make stupid comments. I don't address comments 90% of the time. Sometimes I'll address comments by deleting them because they're missionaries or pornography or some type of stupid thing like that. And sometimes I'll address comments if they really deserve a response and it's needed. Either it's a simple question I can just answer right away or it's something that I know there's no other way to reach this person or it's something like this. Where this person makes this comment, I have to respond now. Why? Because by the time I looked at it, it's already been on there for a couple of days. So I responded and said, obviously you're not modest enough. And before you complain about Hashem, you should check yourself. Now, do I see a picture of her? No, the picture of her is a cartoon. She is like, not realizing, I'm not talking about a dress. So her response to me was, if I was more modest, I'd be like the Arabs and cover my face with a burqa. So I respond to her, modesty is not just the way you dress. Modesty is also the way you communicate, the way you talk. To go and publicly complain against Hashem and cause the Chilul Hashem clearly shows you're not modest. You're, you're not a reserved person. You're not modest. You share your stuff like Shulamit. Shulamit Badivri in a desert who got raped and caused the whole problem. And our son ended up getting stoned to death. Modesty is not just clothes. People don't understand this. They think if they put a kisurosh and put a dress, what dream are you living in? There's a certain type of modesty that's required. People don't understand this. And even more so, public modesty is like, it should be the easiest, but for some reason, for some people it's the hardest. They have to speak publicly. They have to make videos about themselves publicly. They have to put their pictures on publicly. They have to make public comments. They have to do all these different things. Like, why? 
Don't you understand? Just this is like, what are you trying to get out of that comment by saying I've been modest for five years and I didn't find my shidduch? Like, what were you trying to get other than attention? Poor you, poor you. Like, what? Okay, you got to poor you twice publicly. What else do you want? What else did you expect? What, did you expect Prince Charming to show up? I am here to save the day. I've been looking for you, my dear. Uh, like, what? What did you expect? And I, and you think about it, it's like, nothing. It's like, maybe like, I don't know, like little marbles in the head of people sometimes. And the Yetzirah just gets in and, and like ruffles them up a little bit and people don't think. Oh, let me make a comment against Hashem publicly. What's the response? I didn't mention Hashem. You don't have to mention Hashem to talk about Hashem. But that's the thing. People don't think. And the Tanya, the Tanya, the foundation of Chabad says, this is not even the Kafakela I was talking about, Bechlad. He was talking about Kafakela for something less than this. Idle talk. You and your friend just talking about nothing. So which way did you take to work uh, yesterday? Uh, I took the highway. What about today? No, I didn't take the highway. I took the uh, turnpike. Ah. Are you going fishing? Yeah, kafakela. That's what Tanya says. That stupid conversation. If it wasn't an example, it's kafakela. That's what Tanya says. What do you want me to tell you? So needless to say, a dumb comment against Hashem on the internet of complaining about how Hashem is doing this, this, and this to you. Like, where did you think you were going to end up with this? Heaven? What do you think? Like Moshe Rabbeinu is going to fight with you now? Fight for you now in, in Gan Eden? Hashem, I just looked at the YouTube video and Mrs. Uh, Silverman over there, she didn't get a shidduch. I saw it. It's all over the news, Hashem. You have to do something about it. Like, what did you think? Avraham Avinu is going to come with Yitzchak and Yaakov. They're all going to fight against uh, the, the Shiduch department of Shemaim? Look what's happening, Ribbono Shalom. She did not find a Shiduch. And it's on YouTube. What did you think was going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. Other than making an example and a joke out of the whole thing, nothing else is going to happen that's positive out of it. Nothing. This actually is probably the best thing that could happen for it. People could learn from it. But nothing positive would happen from it. And if anything, person's going to go to Kafakela for it. Or worse. Because this is, could be, at the very least, Avak Lashonara against Hashem. No more, no less. What the snake did. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. It doesn't matter. Rabotai, Abu it doesn't matter if you mean it or not. Chilul Hashem, it doesn't matter if you mean it or not. There are certain sins that a person makes, it doesn't matter if you mean it or not. It doesn't matter. Oh, but I didn't mean to. Okay, you still killed somebody. It doesn't matter, you killed him. Still dead body over here. What, what, what? No, no, but I thought the button was for the light, not the gas chamber. Okay. You thought. There's 50 people dead. You thought.
people don't understand. The judgment in Shamaim is so heavy that, Mamash, you don't want to talk. You don't want to talk. And in, in reality, in most cases, it's not worth it. It's not worth the talk. Sometimes I have certain people that uh, that I have to like answer their calls because it's like either uh, you know somebody that I know for many many years. And the conversation is so different today than it used to be. It used to be oh conversation back forth back forth, but now it's like yeah how you doing good how you doing good turn on good all right. Give her regards to the family. All right, good to hear from you. Good. Why? Because I can't talk Torah to these people. There's nothing else I can talk about. Good, good. All right. Regards to the family. Good to hear from you. Good. It's a reality. It's a reality of things. You have to start. You calculate certain things. It's not worth it. Certain things you gotta invest in. 15, 16, 18, 25 year old that I know is really serious, needs help, I need to talk to him about it, send him a bunch of messages or someone. I could spend hours with certain people. Other people, I can't spend three minutes with them. You have to make those calculations. The Balatanya says person who's engaged in Torah but occupies himself instead with frivolous things. I mean, a person who's able to engage in Torah but instead occupies himself with frivolous things. Kafakela itself will not effectively cleanse the soul. But rather, heavy penalties are meted out for Bitul Torah in particular. Apart from the general retribution for the neglect of positive commandment through indolence, namely in the genome of snow. To hear the, uh, the Bala Tanya talks about details of genome, there's different departments, there's the genome of fire, genome of snow, the skafakela, he gives a lot of details. I've never heard a single Chabadnik talk about this stuff. Are you sure they have the same Tanya? I bought it from their website. <laughs> Maybe I should sell it? So, Sefer Asamak <laughs> by Rabbi Yitzchak Ben Rabbi Yosef Mikrubil. It says that when the Rasha is taken from the world, three angels of destruction come to him. The first angel says, the Pasuk in the book of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 22. There's no peace for the wicked, says Hashem. Second angel says, Isaiah 50, verse 11, that you shall, uh, you should die in sorrow. The third angel says the verse in Ezekiel 32.19. Where it says, uh, Descend and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised in the pit. And then, 
they slingshot his soul from one end of the world to the other end. As it says in the book of uh, Samuel 25-29, and the suffering that he gets, says Sefer HaSamak, is incomprehensible. That's the word he uses. Incomprehensible. I can't hear you. Ken, Ken. Women are obligated to study these things that they're supposed to know. Which means Musal, behavior, and Alachot that are relevant to them. Alachot Shabbat, Alachot of Yom Tov, uh, Alachot of a, uh, Nida, uh, things like that. So, so long, and also how to, how to raise a family. So long as a woman knows the basics, learns the basics, does the basic, and she pushes her husband and children to learn Torah, she's fulfilling our goals. So much so that if a husband gets to a level of Ruach HaKodesh because of his learning and his good deeds, she automatically gets it. Without her studying a day in her life. She just knows the basics of how to be a Jew. But her husband became a big tzaddik, Talmit Chacham, Baal Ruch HaKodesh, she automatically gets it. Mamash, his Torah is her Torah. And so, when a woman invests her time to make sure that the husband and kids are learning, are doing everything that they're supposed to, then there's a there's nobody better than her. When a husband is not doing it, also means that the woman is not doing her job. Why? Every woman knows she can get her husband to do certain things. She can get her husband to do certain things. Why? When she wanted a new refrigerator, and the husband says, Nah, honey, we can't afford it. Somehow the refrigerator showed up three days later. Like he said, I can't afford it, I can't do it. But somehow the refrigerator showed up three days later. Like somehow it just appeared in the house. Boops. How? She got him to do it. He says, honey, we can't go on vacation. But somehow they went on vacation. Somehow they went on vacation. So she has to understand. That strength, that power that Akadosh who gave her to use to get a refrigerator and a kitchen and a vacation, she has to use it to get her husband to go learn Torah. Why? So both of them can get to Gan Eden. So, but it also means that if a person does not do their job, they're in the same place. Why? Because they're partners. They're partners in everything. It's not common for one to be righteous and the other one to be wicked. It's not common. Like sometimes you'll see, oh yeah, he's religious, but his wife is not religious. He wants to be religious. And secular at the same time. If he was really religious, he wouldn't marry a secular woman. Oh, what about if he did tshuva after... uh, That's not very common. It's not very common that a guy does tshuva or the woman does tshuva to that extent that there's... It exists, but... It's usually together, it's usually, it's not, it's not so, uh... And the point is, either way, that whole phase of one's religious and one's not, it cannot last very long. Either they're going to get a divorce, or, or the other one's going to join. Or they're both going to break. It cannot, you cannot be religious or not religious for a long term, it's just not possible. So, that's the thing. So usually, the, by the time people get to their, their time... Uh, there's enough of a history that Hashem has in his book says look 
Look how many times, how many Yom Kippur was passed. Look how many times I uh, sent you guys a rebuke for him not learning enough. Look how many times I sent you a rebuke for our not being this enough, that enough. Da, 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 da. Your partner is in the whole thing. And when a person sees, goes up to Shemaim and sees, oh, look at that. I have a uh, full uh, report card as if I studied every single day Torah to the best of my abilities. In reality, I tried, but I didn't become a Talit Chacham. So how come my report card is like this? Ah, because my wife dedicated all of the time that she has and all of her body and effort for me to go study. And she, basically, she has to get the full mitzvah. Why? She did her best. I tried my best. I didn't get very hard, but we're both getting full credit for what we did. Why? She did her best. I did my best. We're getting credit as just like Rav Kanievsky. On the other hand, I didn't try. He didn't try. Both of us are getting babkis. So that's 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 what people need to understand. It's not a uh, it's not a, a, a he's on his own, uh, she's on her own, and everybody's on their own. It doesn't work like that. A lot of people are like that. It was a very very un- unhealthy marriages, where you see the woman or the husband. Uh, you know, usually it's the woman it be, it becomes more religious, and she doesn't necessarily. Uh, want to push her husband to become more religious. She figures, listen, he doesn't want to, I don't want to fight him. Shlom bayit, shlom bayit. It's not a good thing. Why? Because it's a... Uh, you're not doing your job. In the beginning, no problem. But you're already five years like this, ten years like this, and your husband's still not... Something's wrong. Something's wrong. So it doesn't make any sense. And I've seen a lot of women, a lot of women that... You know, would tell me, oh, listen, my um, my husband, I don't want to talk to him about anything about religion, nothing. I'm like, wait, but I, I, you told me that you've been watching Shulim for 20 years already. Yeah, I'm watching, but uh, he doesn't want to hear it. Something's wrong there. It doesn't make any sense. You're giving him the feeling that it's okay. There has to be something. There's no way that you would be so nonchalant if it was something that you cared about. Same thing uh, with, with women and their kids. Sometimes you see a woman, the kid is complete apikos, doesn't keep nothing, whatever. You tell, how come you don't tell your kid uh, to, to do tshuva, to go to yeshiva, to go learn Torah? No, no, it's not for him yet, it's not for this, he'll learn. Like, why? Like, if you knew that his life is on the line, wouldn't you cry? If he just got cancer, wouldn't you cry? They're, they're, oh, please, give me a blessing. You don't think that violating Shabbat is worse than cancer? If you don't think that violating Shabbat is worse than cancer, there's something wrong with you. That means you're not, you yourself are not religious enough. And that's the thing. So that's that's the problem. A lot of times people give the uh, benefit of the doubt to the wrong people. Because they don't want to fight with them. They think that they're doing them a favor. In reality, they're not they're, they're actually it's, it's it's the worst thing you can do. But it's tough. Why? Because those people that are closest to you are usually the most difficult to get the message to them. So that's when a person has to eliminate their ego and say, listen, I need to get the message to them, but it doesn't necessarily need to get there through me. It can get there through the friend, through the rabbi, through the f- somebody, some other way. It doesn't necessarily need to always come through me. Because... No husband wants to hear it from his wife constantly. And no wife wants to hear from her husband constantly about how they're doing everything wrong. So sometimes you have to give the message in an indirect way. 
in an indirect way. Well, you know, for, if a person, let's say, uh, uh, wants to, uh, you know, say certain things, he has to, you know, say things in a, uh, he has to be creative. You know, his wife was late. She's always late. If he tells her she's always late, she's going to stop being late? No. What can he do? Wait. A day, two days, three days. Somebody else was late at work. He doesn't really care about the people at work. That they're late at work. But he cares that his wife is late. So what does he do? Come home to his wife. Honey, can't believe it. You know, there's one of the people at my job, doesn't matter what their name is, but one of the people at my job, I can't believe it. They're always late. I'm tired of doing their job. It's so annoying when people are late, don't you think? And she'll start agreeing with them, but then, if she's smart, she'll realize, wait, I'm late sometimes. If he hates lateness so much, maybe I should stop being, maybe I should try to be more careful. And sometimes you'll see that the way, oh, wow, you know, I'm sorry, I, I was late the other day. Oh, you were? No, nah, I didn't notice. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, whatever. Well, you say it, it's fine. Oh, I didn't notice. And that's the thing. Sometimes you have to be clever. You have to talk. You have to treat each other like a like a like a precious jewel. You know, usually people, you know, when they're with like their friends, they're very careful. When they're with their spouse, pah! It's like a baseball bat. It should be the opposite, really. Spouse, the kid, you have to be like a lot more careful, like so you don't like make any permanent damage. But people are. Don't do that. They give like, you know, real hits to each other. And it makes a lot of damage. So, bottom line is for everything, everything that I say applies to both men and women. But in general, the roles of men and women are slightly different in a sense that, yes, a woman is not judged on, uh, on the Torah that she's learning because she's not obligated to learn the same type of Torah. But... Is your husband doing it? You know, is your husband doing it? Are you asking him to go watch a movie with you? Or are you asking him to uh, go uh, learn Torah? Are you getting him closer to the Torah? Or are you getting him further from the Torah? Some women are stupid. What do they do? Honey, you want to come uh, to my girlfriend's house with me? A husband is really nice. That's a stupid woman. Why? You will never benefit out of your husband going to your girlfriend's house. If anything, your husband will leave you for your girlfriend. That's the best. That's the that's the reality of what happens in many houses. The, the the husband becomes friends with her girlfriends and eventually cheats on her with her girlfriends. Ninety percent of all of the cheating that happens, it doesn't happen with strangers. It happens with friends. Who introduced her to the friends? She did. No benefit will come out of him meeting your friends. There's really no. What you should do, honey. Go learn Torah. I'm going to go have coffee with my friend. I need to talk to her about, I don't know, some mitzvah we're going to do. There's no need for you to come to my friends. But some women, they think that their husband is a puppy. They want to bring the puppy with them everywhere. That's not a smart woman. So you have to do everything possible. Get him to go learn Torah. Get him to go learn Torah. Of course, you need to know your own things also. But the main, main thing... Is that the uh, husband goes learn Torah and the kids learn Torah. That's the main, main thing. Of course, you need to know the basics so you're not completely clueless. But the main, main focus of a family is for the, the, the guys to learn Torah. So they know enough to lead the family. The mother needs to know enough to teach the kids. Which, in today's world, it's really a lot of learning. Uh, that a mother needs to do anyway. 
But as far as like a time, a daily amount of time and a set amount of required every single day, that's the responsibility of a man. The responsibility of a woman changes over time, much more than a man does. Because the wife, you know, when they first got married, there's no kids. So if it's a healthy, you know, religious marriage, there's no kids. If it's not a religious marriage, then sometimes there's eight kids by the time they get married. And finally they decide to have to, to, to get married. So for religious marriage, there's no, there's no kids. So at least for that first year or so, there's a lot of time that she has. A lot of time she has. She should try to do as much learning as she can. Of course, as long as the husband is supportive and they're on the same page and so on. Good, she should do. She should, she should learn. She should know what to do and everything. The kids, in the beginning, need a certain amount of attention. She should learn a certain amount while the kids... As the kids grow up, they need more time, not less time. A lot of people think, oh yeah, when there's a baby, they need the most amount of time. When they're older, they need less time. It's the opposite. When they're little babies, most of the time they're sleeping. And the time they need to spend with them is really just some way to convince them to go to sleep and eat and sleep and eat and not much going on. As they get older and they sh- their intellect develops, they need more of your time, more of your attention. So you can't continue doing the text messaging with your four- four-year-old screaming in the background. While the two-year-old you could do it with, the one-year-old you could do it with, the four, five, six-year-old that wants your attention, you can't do it. So your time changes. When he was uh, zero, one, two years old, you were able to study half the day. Four or five years old, you're lucky if you get one shield a week. Why? That's a reality. So does Hashem want the woman to learn? Or does He want to have kids? Kamara says... Burn the Torah and don't give it to the women. Meaning, women have an obligation in the world. And it's not to learn Torah. You need to know Torah. But to learn Torah is not your obligation in the world. And it's better to go burn it, chas v'shalom, than for have a kolal full of women like some of these modern reshaim do today. That's what the Gemara says. But people say, no, no, she's going to be a rabbi. She... Rabbi, it's an oxymoron. Do you guys see this? No? It's like talking to walls. So, the responsibility changes. But, you have to take advantage of your time. I remember when we first started doing tshuva, my wife and I, literally, there's like some shiur on, 24 hours a day practically. Today... It's a uh, like an achievement just to get a story in between us. Why? Because you have Baruch Hashem, three little cute kids, responsibility, this, that, the other thing. That's the way it is. It's the way it is. Where is she, is she fulfilling her role more? You know, years ago when there was no kids and we're listening to Shulet Torah all day and all night, or today with uh, with the kids? Clearly, it's today. Today, if you compare the two, you have okay, righteous, you know, good woman to Eshet Chayil. Why? Here, okay, you're an individual. Here, you're a family. Here, you're a continuation. Here, you're a nation. It's not, it's not, it's, 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 it's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. Unfortunately, sometimes people focus too much on themselves and forget that the world is not about you. And it happens a lot with women, where women, for whatever reason or another, they get this uh, uh, bug where they think that it is just as important 
for them to learn Torah as it is for their husband. And there's no bigger mistake than that. Many times I see women, they tend, they watch, and I ask once in a blue moon, oh, where's your husband? Oh, no, he couldn't come. Why not? Oh, he's working. Okay, next week. Oh, I'll come. He's working. Six months. Oh, he's working, working, working. Has he watched Shurim online? No. Oh, so you're telling me that you're the only one that's watching my Shurim for three years already? Yeah. So you haven't learned anything then? Did you ever see in any of my shulim I say, oh, what a reward a woman will get for being a talmidah chachama? Did you ever see me say that in the shul? Did you ever see any chacham say that? No. Good, you learn. Bukhaba, have uh, 500 women. I don't care. It's a, but don't forget, it's, I need you to bring your husband. Many times women forget that. They watch shulim online. And it's very easy to get women to, uh, to attend shulim or to watch online. You'll see many times people have shurim. You'll see there's more women than men. Why are there more women than men in, in this generation watching Torah? Women don't have a yetzara. They don't have a yetzara for Torah. I don't have to convince you to come to Shul Torah. If anything, I have to convince him. Why do I have to convince him? That's just a reality. He has a higher obligation than you. So he has a higher yetzara than you. But... Allah says, you're not allowed to have a shiur Torah just for women on a regular basis. Why? You see the same group of women, and only women, every single week, for sure you're going to sin. What do rabbis do today, these reshaim do today? Most of the shiur Torah, just women, the same women. Why? It's easy to fill the chairs. Guy feels important, he shows up, 50 women, 100 women, 500 women show up. Oh, we love him. He's a rabbi. Yeah, and how many of you made a sin with him by now? How many of you? 2, 3, 4, 5, 17. Shemishmol. Chai. Mit. Why? Who says you're allowed to give a shul to the same group of women every week? Now, if it's mixed, you have men on this side, you have women on that side. No problem. Especially if it's husband and wife, Baruch Hashem. Fantastic. But just women, the same group of women? No, no permission whatsoever. But what do people do today? They don't care about Allah. They don't care about nothing. They care about popularity. And the women, they also don't care. Honey, I'm going to shoot Torah. Oh, okay, I thought I was going to go. No, no, I need to go. Okay, okay, you go. And sometimes women ask me, listen, Rabbi, what's more important that I go learn about Tarat Mishpacha? You know, it's really important, Rabbi. Tarat Mishpacha, she told me, you know, Rabbi, Tarat Mishpacha is very important, and modesty is very important, right, Rabbi? Yeah, it's important. Or my, my husband going to learn some daf yomi or something. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, it's, I'm not even sure if it's, if, 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 if there's a response for such a person. Why? They already made a decision. Their husband's Torah is worthless. And their Torah is Rabbi Akiva. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. Now, there are certain women that achieved great wisdom without disturbing their husband's Torah. Rav Shvadron, he was a genius. He says every night after his mom worked all the different jobs, 
fed them. She was a widow. Uh, his father died. Took care of the kids. Took care of the poverty. Took care of the problems. Took care of everything. Put everybody to sleep. Anytime he would wake up to go get a drink or something or go to the bathroom, he would always see his mom after everybody sleeping, learning the midrash. Learning the midrash. She became an expert in midrash. Anytime he says, I grew up already, begin to, anytime I had questions in midrash, I'd ask my mom. Expert. When did she do it? After she took care of her responsibility. What do people do? Take the responsibility, throw it in the garbage. This is my new responsibility. I'm going to be a rabbinit. Yeah, but your husband is a construction worker. Where's the rabbinit come from? Now I'm going to be a rabbinit. So that's the mistake of 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 the uh, of people that don't know their role. It's important for a person to be knowledgeable, both men and women, but never ever forget their role. And that's in essence what leads a lot of people to uh, this horrible place we've been talking about for the last hour where a woman could easily do the biggest mitzvah in the world have a child raise this child to learn some Torah and then say if I didn't have kids I'd probably know a lot more that simple sentence, she's going to Kafakela for it. That's that's the thing. That's what people don't understand. It's stupid things like that that land a person into such a horrible place that you would think, oh, why is Hashem so vicious? No, He's not vicious. You're vicious on yourself. Because you didn't say it passingly. You thought about it. It, 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 it cultivated in your head. You've discussed it with yourself and with others. It's not something that just comes out. And that's the thing. People spend a lot of time regretting because they don't understand the significance of their actions and they always want to be somewhere else. Someone else. And that's, that's, excuse me, that's one of the big mistakes that Chachamim kept repeating over here is that a person that regrets their mitzvot, that's one of the sentences. And so far, I haven't found a, 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 a pleasant area in Kafakela. Any other follow-up? So, next. Sefer HaSamak. same one that says that the punishment is incomprehensible brings an extraordinary chidush same one that says that the rasha is taken from this world by three different angels they punish him nightmare, nightmare, nightmare he brings light to the issue What's the light? Praiseworthy is the one who does tshuva. Because not only is he forgiven for his sins, but also his sins get counted as merits as he gets rewarded 
as if he lived for eternity just doing mitzvot. A person now hears the shoe, got scared to death, okay, I'm doing tshuva. Sefer Samak says, not only do your past sins can turn into mitzvot, but it's you'll be judged as if you've never made a sin in your life. And you live the eternity of mitzvot, meaning there's literally no end to the reward. That's why he's praiseworthy, the Baal Tshuva. But if he doesn't do Tshuva, says the Samak, he's punished as if he did sins for eternity. You heard the truth and still did not do Tshuva? The person is judged as if the only thing he ever did in his life is sins. That's what I was referring to today. Some chachamim that say there is no merit for, uh, there is no reward for 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 mitzvot for a person that's considered the rasha. Like a person is a mechalel shabbat, he's uh, I don't know whatever he does all these different things that he's sukharet. He dies. He doesn't get any any reward for anything. He gets punished for it. And this is one of the opinions. He says, "Mamash, a person dies. A he's he's a rasha. There is no reward." So it's it's a it's it's these are not storytellers, and it's one of the things that I think is one of the most scary is that you see that the the greater the chachamim, the greater the fear. What time is it? Four? Oh, it's still early. <laughs> The Ramban, 800 years ago, one of the Rishonim, in Shara Gmul, chapter 7. There's an English version of it by um, a publisher called Shiloh. In there, it's page one, uh, 540. The souls of the wicked roll in descent again. This soul tries to return to the element of spiritual fire. It was created in order to rise higher, but the klipa from sins separate and restrain it, and instead it's pulled into the fire of Genom. And this is the essence of Karit. Like a branch is cut off from a tree that gave it life. So, the Ramban, in essence, is repeating one of the uh, types of, of uh, kafakel that we were talking about before, that the, uh, the soul of the sinner does not have any of its own strength to keep itself elevated. So it has to continuously go down to uh, the sins that are causing it to uh, have no power and therefore crash. And uh, one of the things that causes it to complete crash is uh, the uh, any sin of karet. Because once a person has a karet sin, 
that uh, he does not do tshuva for. It's the equivalent of a branch that is cut off from the tree. What is the what's the what's the analogy? A branch could be the most beautiful branch in the world, but as soon thank you, but as soon thank you very much. Uh, as soon as the branch is cut off from the tree, no matter how beautiful the branch is, it dies. It can have all the most beautiful flowers in the world. Once you cut it from the tree, it does has no more life source. That's it. Finished. No more branch. Branch is going to die. The flowers are going to die. Everything's going to die. Unless you replant it and it catches root again. But you just put it, leave it out there. Everything's going to die. The neshama, once it is a, it violates Shabbat on purpose or Nida or Yom Kippur or someone, and there's a isu karet, that's it. The life source that connects it. Connects the neshama to the life source to Kadosh Baruch Hu, It's cut, so that means that that neshama no longer has power to float in the upper worlds on its own. So where does it go? It just continues to crash nonstop, to never, never land. There's no end. That's another form of kavakela that the Ramban is mentioning over here. Now. What is meant by constantly crashing? It's just it's dropping. Can't. Okay, so let's say uh, I don't have this. I don't have much. Okay, this. You see the card? Cool card. Can get somebody to do tshuva. But now imagine. Okay, it goes. It crashes. Right. Now, obviously, if this was something a little heavier or something bigger, the crash would be more significant. It would be a bounce. If it was, let's say, uh, Play-Doh, you'd see it crash and it would change its shape. Right, so in essence, the neshama is dropping and non uh, endlessly, but somehow it's also getting crushed at the same time, as if it's hitting something and dropping at the same time. So it's a constant destruction of the same thing over and over and over and over again with no end. So it's shem um, yachem. What can I tell you? Uh, we're almost uh, done in this section, that's it. So, Sefer Torah Chaim by Rabbi Avraham Chaim Ben Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Hirsch about 400 years ago. Commentary on Masechet uh, Baba Batra, page 79. This uh, Sefer Torah Chaim is regarding each Masechet, regarding... Uh, uh, and this this particular section is regarding Gainom. And he says, until a certain fire arrives that doesn't need self-sustaining fire that's inflating, that will consume his soul. What is this fire? From this fire is created the the, the world. So, in essence, the Chacham is, is trying to explain what is this thing that's keeping it up. Certain type of fire. What is this t- certain type of fire? It's the fire that Hakadosh Baruch created the world with. As the Ravad wrote in the intro of Sefer Yetzirah, that the souls of the wicked after death they cleave to the foundational element of fire, and this is why it's written in the book of Samuel that the soul of your enemy 
because the foundational fire is always turning with the soul uh, with the soul and tumbles like in kafakela and there's a place in genom that is similar to kafakela so that's one of the things that actually I noted this here is that the reason why I mentioned this here is that even though he's not necessarily talking about kafakela he's talking about two things one is a certain type of fire that the soul is made from but the other thing that was really interesting is the fact that he says that there's a place inside Genom that's like Kafakela. But it's not Kafakela. May we never see. The Vida Melech in Psalm 11, verse, uh, ch- chapter 11, verse 1, says, For the conductor by David in Hashem, I've been uh, taking refuge. How dare you say to me, Flee from your mountain like a bird. Now the Radak, who lived about 800 years ago, comments on this verse that the wicked enemies of David the Melech would tell him he'll fly like a bird. Where does it mean he'll fly like a bird? The enemies of, of David the Melech would say you're going to go to Kafakela for being with uh, Bathsheba. And then Abigail would come to David the Melech and reverse it by saying the verse in the book of Samuel. That's where she. That's why she said what she said. While all your enemies are saying that you're going to fly like a bird and go to Kafakela, in reality, all your enemies will go to Kafakela, not you. And the Al-Shikha Kadosh, in a commentary on Psalm, chapter 1, verse 4, on the words, Lochen HaRashaim, says the success of the wicked isn't like the success of the tzaddikim, because the wicked are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The soul of the tzaddik wants to cleave to Hashem, but the rasha can't do it because is a uh, is tumah is uh, and the chitzonim take control of him, and ultimately the uh, he gets slingshot and kafakela. The Al Sheikh on Kohelet and um, Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, verse 14 15, where it says, The fools don't know till they go to Kafakela. It says, The fool, uh, uh, the fool prattles on and on, but man doesn't know what will be, and who can tell what will happen after him. The toil of fool exhausts him, as one who doesn't know the way to, uh, to, the way to town. So the uh, the Al Sheikh says, "Why doesn't he know the way of town? Why does he? Uh, why does the fool not know until he ends up going to Kafakela?" Says because the uh, the powers of Tuma, the destructive powers of Tuma that the person created 
through his sins are all called ksilim. Like he is called a ksil, he's called a fool. The powers of Tuma is also called a ksil. And they're going to be slinging him from one end of the world to the other. Because his foolishness led to their creation. And they don't know the way to town. Means that uh, they, uh, they don't know the way to the Shekhinah. Sefer Megillat Starim says that notice that there isn't much detail regarding why a person gets punished with kafakela. There's a few things, Lashonarad, there's uh, this, there's very minimal. But a person has to be careful of everything. Because even if one creates secrets of Torah, from his own mind or learns Kabbalah inappropriately and therefore creating idolatry uh, sin of don't make yourself into an idol and will ultimately be punished in Kafakela. So what's the purpose of Kafakela? Rabbi Yosef Albo says in Sefer Karim, Amar uh, uh, 4, Perik 33 that aside from punishment the Neshama has two opposing passions cleave to Hashem or physicality the next world versus this world some tzaddikim only desire the upper heavenly world and although some reshaim only desire the lower world and they still pass uh, possess a neshama that desires the upper world and this is similar to the neshama that travels to Kafakila and therefore do whatever necessary not to go there Lastly, the Chida in Parashat Shoftim Ot Hey, in the name of Rabbi Avraham Azulai, in the Sefer Chesed Avraham, on verse uh, in Deuteronomy chapter twenty, verse nineteen, that the nefesh, when it's uh, inside the klipa, is like a rock inside the kafakela, and it's feeling like the Satan, it's feeling the Satan that's chasing her to punish her, and enter into a rock, plant or an animal like a dibuk. Because the tongue can't hurt her while she's inside the, these bodies. And this is what Hashem, Itbarach, said to the Satan that reporting uh, against her. Um, oh, so the Satan complained to Hashem, how come he allows this uh, uh, Neshama to uh, hide from, uh, from her punishing her? Kafakela. And the. <laughs> And Rabbi Avraham Azulah says that Hashem helps even the Rishayim while they're getting punished. At least gives them a time of a break. The point is, Rabotai, as you see from everything we talked about here so far, in the introduction, <laughs> to Kafakela, there's actually, believe it or not, there's a lot more. But uh, the, uh, the issue of Kafakela is very much a real issue. It's a real subject. 
It's a real danger. It's a real disaster for those people that, especially those people, that don't think it's a disaster, that don't think it's a big deal, that don't think that they need to be worried about it. Now sometimes a person will harp too much on their past and will not allow themselves to move forward. I grew up secular and uh, I wish I grew up religious. I, uh, I grew up not Jewish and I wish I grew up Jewish. I grew up uh, Hasidish and I, grew, I wish I would have grown up this way. I grew up that and I grew up this. These are all tools of the Satan. Who is there to put resistance in front of you in order for you to fall into the trap that will bring you into your own destruction. Now, the Gemara in Masichet Nida says that before a person comes to this world, there's an angel that teaches him Torah in his mommy's belly. He teaches him the entire Torah, then at the end he tells him all of this Torah that we learned, you have to fulfill it. And if you fulfill it, you'll be a tzaddik. And if you don't fulfill it, you're going to be a rasha. And we'll have to punish you. Now, if a, if, if a person remembers all of the Torah and remembers all the good things and has no difficulties in their life, then obviously there's no point of them being in this life. At the same token, HaKadosh Baruch Hu instills a certain amount of Torah inside each and every single person. So it's always easy for them to come back to Hashem. It's always always easy for them to come back to the right direction. So now if a person, let's say, grew up in a, uh, in a secular uh, house or non-Jewish or uh, whatever, not the ideal circumstance, that is not a reason for them to destroy the rest of their life, needless to say, the rest of their eternity. By harping on that past. Because if HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you that upbringing, in that secular house, in that confused house, in that modern house, in that non-Jewish house, in that idol-worshipping house, in whatever house you grew up in, that means that number one, you were supposed to be there. Because of whatever it is that you're connected to in your previous life and everything else. Two, you can handle it. Three, it was the best possible thing that could ever be for you. Meaning, there was no better option. You would not have been better off had you grown up in a more religious house. You would have not been better off had you grown up in a Jewish house instead of a non-Jewish house. You would have not been better off had you grown up in a such and such house instead of the house that you have. To say such a thing is 100% kfira, which will lead you into kafakela. In the best case scenario, if not gain on permanently. Why? Because Akadosh Baruch does not make mistakes. But how come I didn't learn earlier? Because you didn't want to. No, but I never, no one ever taught me because your neshama wasn't ready to. But how come Hashem put me in there because of what you did in your previous life? Meaning, 
all of the questions that you have have answers to them. You may not like the answers, but whatever circumstance you have, you made it. You chose it. Says the Rashid Chochmah, there was a tzaddik. All his life he kept Torah and mitzvot to perfection. Got up to Shemaim. Says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm here. I worked hard. The Betin of Shemaim says you did amazing. But there's a little bit of lichluch, a little bit of dirt on your neshama from some small things that you did. There's no such thing as a righteous person not sinning. So for that, a little bit of filth, you have to clean you in Genom. Three days. Or you can come back and be reincarnated for an entire life. Sadiq says, no, 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 forget about it. I don't want to go back to the world. It's a big risk. Live another 50, 60 years. Possibly make sins this time around. No, no, no. I'd rather just go to Genom for three days. Okay, no problem. couple of giant Malachi Chabala come and start taking them down the long road to Genom. As they get closer and closer, he starts feeling the heat. He says, what is this heat? We're in Gainom. He's like, no, 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 it's still going to be a few miles away. Wait, you tell me it's this hot from this far away? We don't know. We're just angels. So I don't know if I can take it. He's like, listen, you already made it. You already made the decision. They get closer and closer. He starts crying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Save me from this. I know I chose it, but I can't do it. I'll go back to the whole world. For 70 more years, just to avoid three days. Just to avoid three days. I'll go back for all 70 years. Just to avoid three more days. In three days in Gehenom. He didn't even enter Gehenom yet. He was just on the way there. When he came to the world, do you think he just put him in some random body? Does Hashem do anything random? The cells in your body have names. The hairs on your head have names. The stars in the universe have names. Akadosh Mogu has names for everything. You think there's anything random? You just happen to appear in some family? You happen to do this and that? Kadosh Baruch Hu puts you there for a reason. And if he puts you there, it's the best possible thing. Now, if a person understands the basics of Emunah in Kadosh Baruch Hu, that Hashem runs the world and nobody else runs the world, it becomes much easier to handle all of the different trials and tribulations of life. Why? Because the Satan will always tell you, listen, you don't need to be so hard on yourself and push yourself to learn two, three hours a day. You can learn half hour a day. Why? Because you work. You can learn less. Why? Because you're married. Because you're tired. Because you're fat. Because you're skinny. Because you have an eye over here and an eye over here. Because you're this. Because you're this. Because you'll give you excuses of why you can do all these different things. You can do it. You can do it because I like you. Because you like me, and well, whatever reason I'll come up with. And little by little, a person is following the Satan and designing their own destruction. 
When Kadosh Baruch before he brings the Neshama into this world, he tells the Neshama, the angel tells the Neshama, look, this is the world you're going to be in. This is the house you're going to be in. This is the family you're going to be in. This is the height, the weight, the this, the that. Or this sentence. What is it? Genom, pa, 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 all the... Okay, I want that. You sure? Yeah, 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 for sure. Sign. Sign. You have to sign. Meaning, there's no mistake. You were born that way because it's the best thing for you. There was no other better way. But despite all of that, Chachamim teach us, if a person understood... How significant it is to be a Baal Tshuva, they would thank Hashem to no end for giving them the opportunity to be one. Baal Tshuva is not just somebody that was not religious and now is religious. Baal Tshuva can be a person that's been religious their whole life for certain things, but not religious for other things. He could have kept Shabbat his whole life. He could have kept uh, practically everything else, but he wastes seed. Whether that person... Kept Shabbat, kept everything, but he wastes seed. Or the other person is didn't keep anything. Whether it's him or him, neither one of them has a share of the world to come. They're both doomed. Yeah, but he kept Shabbat. Okay, so they'll shut off the genome on Shabbat for him. That's it. It's the only privilege that he has. Yeah, what about the rest of the stuff that he did? Goes to the garbage pail. He gets rewarded for it in this world, and that's it. After that, it's nothing. Why? He has a issue, he has a serious sin that, uh, unless he does you up for it, it's not fixable in the next world. It's too much damage. What about the other one that didn't keep anything? Same thing. Which means that both can be Baal Tshuva. And Chachamim say, a Baal Tshuva, there's simply nothing better than that. And if a person understands the significance of a Baal Tshuva, where the Zohar says the Shekhinah is constantly on top of her, as these, as, 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 because she's a Baalat Tshuva. Shekhinah is constantly on because he's a Baal Tshuva. That already is like a miracle of miracles. Even more so. person understands. Wait, this guy that's been through most of his life and now is doing Tshuva, okay, so he's, he's, he's good. But, uh, he has to earn a lot in order to get to a lot. I made a lot of sins in my life. But I did tshuva. And if I continue going this way, I can turn all of those sins into mitzvot. If a person seriously calculates how many sins they made versus how many mitzvot, surely you made more sins than mitzvot. With all due respect to everybody. At least I know I did. Number-wise, for sure more sins than mitzvot before I did tshuva, for sure. To turn all of that those sins into mitzvot, I'm a tzaddik. That's what the Chachamim were talking about. This guy did tshuva. He's a tzaddik already. What do you mean? But he just started. He barely knows how to read. He's a tzaddik. Don't you understand how many mitzvot he has? What mitzvot? He just stopped murdering six months ago. Yes, but that's the point. Now he's turning things into mitzvot. All of those sins are turning into mitzvot. One after another. As his tshuva gets better and better. One after another. And some Chachamim say automatically. Like there's all types of great gifts. That Hashem gives Am Yisrael 
to simply just listen to what he says. For example, a person learns Torah, gets a lot of uh, mitzvot from learning Torah. Every letter is a mitzvah. Every second is a mitzvah. It's constant, constant mitzvot learning Torah. But the Ben Yishchai says, you learn Torah on Shabbat. Every hour is like a thousand hours. Torah you learn on Shabbat, every hour is like a thousand hours. But, a couple of other Chachamim say, no, no. What was really trying to say here is, it's not really a thousand hours. 17,000 hours. Every hour is 17,000 hours. So as much as we love the Ben Ishchai, we don't pass in like him here. We want the 17,000 hours. Why does Hashem make such a gift? Because I can't wait to give you stuff, he says. I can't wait to give you, I want to give you more, I want to give you good. I want to give you good, I want to give you all the good that there is beyond your imagination. All I need you to do is listen to what I say. Follow it. And he's going to give you no end to the good. Not an end in this world, not an end in the next world. Why? Because that's the only reason why he created us. Good creates good. He doesn't benefit out of it one or one way or another. He's perfect. We exist. We don't exist. We make sins. We make mitzvot. Shem doesn't change. He's perfect. He's perfect. So, the whole point of creating us is to create good. To give us an opportunity to, to, to give us good. Which means that when we do bad, when we don't listen to Him, we're restricting His ability to give us the good that is the only reason why He created us in the first place. So you're going to say, yeah, but had He created me in a more religious family, maybe I would have done better. Had he created me in a Jewish family, maybe I would have done better if I didn't have to convert. Had he created me in a certain way as a man instead of a woman, maybe... Wait, you think you know better than Hashem? You think that you would have picked a better situation for yourself than Hashem did? When he's the one that created you and he knows what's good for you better than what you know what's good for you, and he only created you to give you good, and you still think that you know better than Hashem? And then you're surprised that there's a whole section for people like you called Kafakela. So, so that's the thing. When a person understands, starts thinking about all of these different things, says, you know what? It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Why? Because you have to be a much stupid. Stupid to go against the, the hand that feeds you, the hand that created you. And he said, yeah, but he wasn't born religious. What do you think, Hashem is just going to leave him out in the woods? He created him to give him good, but he just, because he was born in a certain family, in a certain neighborhood, in a certain place, Hashem is just going to leave him there? Like Hashem didn't put him there? Everybody gets a chance. Everybody gets a chance. Nobody goes through a whole life without hearing from Hashem. Nobody goes through a whole life without... Getting an opportunity to see the truth. Not once, not twice, and not endless amount of times. Everybody gets a chance. Everybody. Question is what you're going to do with that chance.
Wait, some people are going to focus all of their energy on complaining. Complain, I was married to that guy, I was married to this girl, I did this, I did that, I did this. Okay. Go ahead, complain. See if anybody's listening anyway. Other people? Okay. This is what I got. What can I make out of this Play-Doh? What can I make out of it? What's, what can I do with this? What can I do with this? And I thought on a uh, on um, Sukkot. A nice interesting way to look at the story of Nachumish Gamzu. You guys heard of Nachumish Gamzu? Nachumish Gamzu was one of the rabbis of Rabbi Akiva. Namash, he was Chasidut before Chasidut came to the world. The way he thought about life, everything is for the good, everything is for the good. Now many people think that Chasidut was anti-Musar, anti-Din, anti-Judgment, as we heard today, obviously from the Baal Shem Tov and others, it's completely distortions of the truth. Even if you just uh, see the Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tov, like Rabbi Elimelech Milizhinsk and Rabbi Zusha, not all of their stories are, you know, uh, easy to hear. Like, for example, Rabbi Elimelech Milizhinsk, everybody knew that he had a burnt hand. Small, he had a hand that had a glove on it, because the whole hand was burnt to a crisp. You know who burned it? He did. He burned himself. On purpose. Why did Rabbi Elimelech Milizhinsk burn his hand on purpose? Because through his Abudat Hashem, he got to such a high level that he saw that his Neshama has a mark on it. Tiny little mark on it. What's the mark? When he was three years old, when he was three years old, he was playing with his ima and he hit her. Play with her, little baby. It's his mom's dumb shtiot. He hit her like a ah, pa knocked her out. He was three years old. What can you possibly do? You're three years old. But he hit his mom. Now, even though he's three years old, and even though he's not obligated to mitzvot. And even though it's his mom, and even though it's just plain, and even though, and even though, and even though, and even though, then the Shabbat still gets a stain. It's a stain, tiny stain. It's not a stain of Chilu Shabbat. It's not a stain of uh, beating up on your parents, really. Just, but there's still a stain. Okay, you didn't mean to spill the whole thing, but even though it spilled, there's a little drop fell on your shirt. And when your shirt is really, really white, even though it's a tiny little stain, you can see it more. It. He got to such a level, said there's a stain. Simply, the Shema has a stain, it's intolerable. How do you fix the stain? You have to burn it. No way am I going to the next world and burning anything. Took his hand that made this made the stain and burned the hand to a crisp. Do not try this at home. You're not Rabbi Elimelech Meljinsk. But that hand 
became the, became the hand of miracles. Where literally there was open miracles with this hand. One couple had a uh, young uh, daughter that uh, had a growth uh, problem. She couldn't grow. She was little. Even though she was already 15, 16 years old, she still was the size of a baby. Tried this, that, nothing helped. Said, go to the tzaddik, Rabbi Elimelech Melejinsk. It's one of the Talmidim of the Magid uh, Mimezrich, who was the Talmid of the Baal Shem Tov. Go to him. So they go, and they get to his house, and uh, they wait. And while they wait, they put the little girl on the bed. Whose bed? His bed. comes. It's a tiny little house, so it's not like there's like a room, there's a kitchen, there's a bathroom. It's just a tiny little that's the house. The whole house is, is the bed and the door practically. So he gets into the house, he sees there's people in the house, and he sees a little girl. And he says, Chutzpanit, get up. Get off my bed. Now the girl was also not able to move. She wasn't, she was like uh, paralyzed because of the growth issue. She wasn't able to like get up and stuff. But from the fear of his voice, of his Kedusha, suddenly this babe, this baby that's really like a teenager, got the strength to roll over the bed. And the parents started crying to him. To know, for the Rav, you have to understand, she's this, she's that. Oh, okay. So what do you want? We want, we want a blessing. What do you want the blessing to do? They said, we want it to grow. So he puts his hand over the girl. He says, stand up. And the girl stood up. And he puts his hand over the girl. He says, how big do you want it to be? And he raises his, his hand, and she gets bigger. Like this? Uh, no, no, more. Like this, and she keeps growing. Like this? Like this? Like this? He made a teenager. There you go. Okay, Which hand? The hand that burnt to a crisp. The hand that he couldn't function with. The miracles he could do. Miracles he could do. Now, Nachum Gamzu, the preceded Rabbi Elimelech by probably over 1,500 years, he was known as Nachum Gamzu because he said everything is for the good. Meaning that there's no such thing as bad. No such thing as bad. So in a story like Rabbi Elimelech, where a three-year-old made a dent on the soul, it could be viewed as us. Oh, this is ridiculous. He's three years old. Why are you judging him so heavily? He's three years old. He's not judging him. Shem is not judging him. It's just that there's a certain action, a certain reaction. There's a cause. There's an effect. But surely it's good. How could it be good? I just showed you a story, an example of how it's good. Had that whole thing didn't happen with the with the, with the hand, with the baby, the three year old, he wouldn't have been able to save another baby and countless other babies and, and, and people and so on. So surely a Baruch Hu does all of the accounting that's beyond our comprehension of how he makes everything that looks terrible at first beautiful at last. 
Now, Nachum Gamzu already knew this and would always say everything is for the good. Meaning, there is no such thing as bad. It's only bad because you don't know what's going on. It's only bad from your perspective, not from the perspective of heaven. From the perspective of heaven, for sure it's the best. Now what about a better option? You said they died. How could dying be good? Couldn't alive better? No. Why isn't alive why isn't alive better? Because based on all of the issues that are related to this person, had he not died, being alive would have been uh, a, a worse outcome for him than being been being dead. Because you have to calculate everything. So Nahumish Gamzu one day they tell him, listen, we have a problem. One of the, uh, one of the uh, emperors passed a decree. said that uh, we have to make major changes. We're not allowed to keep Torah, mitzvot, and so on. But we want to bribe him. And uh, we want to send him a lot of money, a lot of jewels. But uh, the journey over there is very dangerous. And since you are used to miracles... Why don't you go to him and uh, take it yourself? So Nachum Gamzu takes all these jewels in his chest and travels. As he gets right outside of the city, he stays at some inn in order to go to the castle fresh first thing in the morning. At night, the two owners of the inn both of them are thieves, crooked, Rashaim. They break into the chest of Anachum Gamzu. They see there's a lot of jewels. Their dream come true. They take the jewels and they fill it up with sand instead. No consideration whatsoever the fact that once he brings this to the Caesar, he's going to get murdered in cold blood. No care in the world. Why? Because Rashaim, all they care about is what's in front of them, to fulfill their own desires. That's why the, the Chachamim say you're not allowed to have mercy on Rashaim. If he doesn't have mercy on himself, you're not allowed to have mercy on him. So now, Nachumish Gamzu wakes up in the morning, opens the treasure chest, and sees the sand. You and me, we open a treasure chest, we see sand, what do we do? Go home. Leave the treasure chest there and leave. What are we going to do with sand? The best case scenario, if you're really righteous, you go to the Caesar without anything. So listen, your highness, I came here, but somebody stole it. Here's the treasure chest to show you. It's empty, but really somebody stole it from me. I'm sorry, uh, you know. That's that's the, if you really, really have guts. Most of the time, you say, listen, I lost everything. I'm going back home. Why? Because the, the, the emperor doesn't know that you're coming. It's like he's waiting for you. He's got you an appointment on his Outlook and his Google uh, calendar. Oh, Iran is coming on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. He doesn't know you're coming. So, you don't show up. It's no big deal. No, no loss. Now, the mentality of Nachum Gamzu can teach us a lot. Why? He sees. It's sand. He closes the treasure chest. Yalla, we're going to the king. What, what, what do you mean you're going to the king? You're going to bring that with you? Of course. 
Why? Because that's what I was given to give. No, no, no. You were given a chest full of jewels. That's a chest full of sand. Sure, but that's the best. How could this be the best? Because God gave it to me. No, God gave me the jewels. No, no, no. The people gave me the jewels. God gave me the sand. How could this be good? He gets to the castle, he gets to the king, he gives him the chest full of sand. Initially, the king wants to kill him until Eliyahu Navi appears as one of the soldiers and says, No, no, your highness, these Jews, they're related, their forefathers, Avram Avinu. And Avram, he fought against four nations at once and he beat them because he had special sand. Maybe this is the same type of sand as their forefather. He said, okay, let's go test it. The king goes outside, takes a, some of the sand, throws it in the air, all of it turns into spears, shooting at the enemy. He says, this is the greatest present anybody can ever give me. Go give him, in return, a chest full of diamonds. I don't need diamonds anymore. I just need the sand. Nachum Yamzu says, this too is for the good. Goes back to the same inn. Now, me and you, we went to the first inn, they robbed us. We survived to tell the story, miraculously, because somehow Hashem turned all the sand into spears. So we survived to tell the story. Now we go home, we're going to go back to the same inn, to the people that just robbed us, and put our life in danger. No, a person doesn't. But Nachumish Gamzu goes back to the same place. What's the logic? They didn't do anything to me. What do you mean they didn't do anything to me? They robbed you. No. Hashem gave me a gift through them. They see it. They say, how are you still alive? He says, tell them the story. They say, wow. What a great idea. They fill up a bunch of buckets full of sand. They go to the king and the king hangs both of them question is, how could somebody understand such a story and apply it to their life? Very simple. When Nachum Ish Gamzu said, this too is for the good, unlike most people, he actually meant it. He really said, this is for the good. What does it mean, this is for the good? HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is the ultimate good, who only is good, in order to express his goodness, because good is something that creates good, he created me. Not because he needs me, but rather because good creates good. Why did he create me? In order to give me good. In order to express his goodness again. Thereby, the only reason why he created me was in order to give me good. Therefore, if he created me only to to give me good, then surely whatever he's giving me, out of all of the infinite options that he has, is the best possible choice that can be. Why? Because he is the ultimate good. He only created me to give me good. He also has an infinite amount of options of good to give me. 
that I can view sometimes as bad, I can view sometimes as good. But he has all of the options and he knows all of the outcomes of all of the different options. And since he is the ultimate good, and he only created me as good, for to give me good, and he has all of the options to give me good, and yet he chose this one to give me, and to me it looks horrible. That's because I am lacking in faith in Hashem. I am lacking in bitachon in Hashem. I am lacking in fear of Hashem. I am lacking in trust in Hashem. I am lacking in love of Hashem. I'm lacking in everything. In so many words, I'm spiritually retarded. That's why I look at it as bad. If I was spiritually elevated and I cleave to Hashem, and I really had emunah in Hashem, and I really had bitachon in Hashem, and I really feared Hashem, and I really loved Hashem, any one of those things would have simply been enough to make me realize, surely this is good. But it looks bad only to a person that doesn't believe in God, but only believes in themselves. Because if you believe in the same God of Nachumish Gamzu, that is the ultimate good, that only created you for good, and it can give you everything that he possibly wants, and still chose to give you this, because this is the ultimate good, then how are you complaining? You only see it as bad, because you have a narrow perspective. Now, it's perfectly natural to say, this doesn't look good. If you say everything looks great, you'd simply be Nachumish Gamzu, or David Melech, or some other tzaddik that would probably be giving the shiur instead of me. But the reality is, no one is expecting you to say everything is good. You could say, this looks bad. But the lesson to be learned is that it looks bad, but that's because I'm lacking. It must be good. I don't know yet. Hashem give me the clarity to see why this, out of all of the other possibilities that the Yetzirah is putting in my head now, that could have been a possibility, why, why your option is the best. Give me the clarity. Nachum Gamzu saw that there's sand. Sand Everybody can say, listen, sand is less valuable than the jewels that he had. Yes, if you have simple logic, rationality, you're 100% right. If you live within the natural and nothing supernatural, you're 100% right. But either way, you're going to die. But if you live in the world of Nachumish Gamzu, the world of the Tzadikim, and say, listen, Hashem gave me jewels. Then he gave me sand to replace those jewels. Surely Hashem knows what he's doing if he's replacing the sand with the jewels. He wouldn't allow these people to steal from me if stealing from me wasn't the best thing for me. All of the other options that are in my head were not real options. Why? They weren't available to me. What about the option of not stealing? The option of not stealing was not an available option. 
Maybe available to somebody else that's not here. Maybe it's available to somebody else that doesn't have a certain meaning with a certain person. Maybe it's available to somebody else that doesn't deserve it. But to me, according to all of my actions, my world, the ecosystem that's around me, that's comprised of my actions, the option of not being robbed was not available. There were other options available to me, and out of all of those options, this was the best one. Nachumish Gamzu understood that out of all of the options that you could possibly have, whatever HaKadosh Baruch puts in your hand is not just good, it's the best. And that's what Rabbi Akiva is Talmid extrapolated from it. That everything that the merciful one does is always the best. Not just good, it's the best. So why is he calling him merciful one? He's merciful because number one, he's constantly giving us good even though we're not appreciative of it and even though we don't trust him to give us the good. And even more so, he's patient enough to allow us the time to finally get to a point of really having trust in him, really have emunah in him, that whatever he did give us is really the best. But that trust has a certain clock on it. You can't say, listen, I'll have emunah in Hashem after I die. It's not going to help you. A person needs to understand the job that you have is now. Whatever you can do, now. The circumstances that you're saying are stopping you, most of the time, it's Yetzirah. Because if you have something that you can do in order to serve Hashem, and there is no real barriers to entry, you can do it, all the excuses in the world are not going to help you. How you grew up, if you're black, if you're white, if you're green, if you're burgundy, if you're tall, if you're short, if you're male or you're female. None of that stuff is really going to matter. Why? You have to simply exert the best effort you can. Your best effort. Success in the hands of Hashem. If it's the best thing for you, who's going to make it succeed. If it's not, they'll make it fail. Simple. But you have to do your share. And just like you exert the best you possibly can in order to earn a living, in order to do this, in order to do that, also do it in order to serve Hashem. When you have that kind of mentality, the issues of the world that most people have, that's lack of emunah, lack of bitachon, lack of this, lack of that, they're not your problems anymore. Your problem is, how can I perfect myself enough to avoid kafakela? To avoid genom? To make sure my family is also good? To make sure my friends are good? My community is good? How do I do that? Why? Because you have an understanding of where, who runs the world, what's your job in the world, which turns you into what? To what Rav Slovechik said in the beginning of this you. You know your mission in the world. Once you know your mission in the world, okay, so how do I perfect it now? How do I get everybody else to do it? But you can't worry so much about the whole world until you start working on yourself. 
And even the issues of kafakela and genom and so on, all those different things, those are in essence supposed to inspire you to move, to do something about everything. And not just stay the same. Not stay wicked. Do something. If a person does these things on a regular basis, little by little, they become a source of inspiration for the people around them. And little by little, they could make major headway. And then they will see, that's why Hashem made me black. That's why Hashem made me tall. That's why Hashem made me a woman. That's why Hashem made me a Jew. That's why Hashem made me a non-Jew. That's why Hashem made me this. That's why Hashem made me that. Now I understand. Had I not been such and such, all of these other things would have not happened. All of these things would have not happened. How did this not happen? All of these other things wouldn't have happened. Now I'll tell you the truth. Would any of you have ever come to my shul if I was some little Hasidish guy that grew up in some yeshiva system and said, guys, I have a nice story for you about the such and such Rebbe. Truth is, no. Why? There's a lot of those. But the fact that Akadosh Baruch put me through my own real life roller coaster made it an experience that a lot of people could benefit from. Made it an experience that a lot of people could learn from. Made it an experience a lot of people could connect to and relate to and apply in their own life. And also made me a certain type of personality that can communicate certain things that perhaps other people can't. There are certain things that I talk about freely, like it doesn't affect me in any way, shape, or form. Whereas other people, two words, and they're already... Just the way it is. Certain people have this, certain people have that. Certain people have a certain skin for that, certain people have skin for that. So the key is to understand is that, yeah, at first, you may not understand why the test that you have is the test that you have. But don't ever get to a point of questioning Hashem. Why? That's get you into Kafakela. That scary place we talked about for an hour and a half. Hashem, I have no idea why you're doing what you're doing. But surely you know what you're doing. So I love you. Thank you. And the fact that it hurts, if you can make it not hurt, it'll be also be good. But that's the best thing for me, that's the best thing for me. That's the best thing for me, that's the best thing for me. Rabotai Karim. That's the only way to live life in with a mindset that is not gonna be glued to the worries that everybody around you has. Everybody else around you is worried about what? The problems that they have that were caused by their own limitations. Not limitation of ability. Limitation of emunah. Limitation of bitachon Hashem. Limitation of fear of Hashem. Limitation of connection to Hashem. 
That's where all their problems come from.